episode 13 of the complete Shostov Kishlovsky. I'm Matt Gasteyer, and I'm here with my co-host, Travis Trudell. How are you, Travis? I'm doing well today. How about yourself, Matt? I am doing well. I'm not happy about the fact that it snowed a little bit yesterday, uh, but, uh, you know, I'll make do with, with what we have in this here, Massachusetts. Yeah. It got cold quick. <laughs> yeah, it really did. Um, today we, we will be uh, covering the last two episodes of the Decalogue. Um, this has been a wonderful uh, conversation with a, a lot of really fun guests. And we have another very exciting guest uh, with us today. Uh, it's Daisuke Beppu uh, from, from all the way across the world in uh, Tokyo, Japan, uh, here to to talk to us. How are you today, Daisuke? I'm very good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We are really happy to have you on. You have a wonderful YouTube channel where you discuss uh, the Criterion Collection along with uh, a variety of uh, cinema and home media topics, and it's always a pleasure to listen to your voice, and, uh, and it's a pleasure to have you in uh, the many Facebook groups that uh, we populate. Um, we, we like to call you the Troll Whisperer because uh, you, you, can, uh, you can pacify even the, uh, the most difficult Facebook uh, member. So um, it's always a delight to speak to you online, and it's really exciting to uh, speak to you uh, in person or on the phone anyway. Yeah, well, the pleasure is all mine, gentlemen. So it, it, this is, uh, I'm looking forward to this very much. You guys are really great, and I've been listening to the complete... Uh, so this is such a big thrill for me. So uh, thank you very much for allowing me to be uh, play a small part in your great project. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's 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 a pleasure to uh, to have you on. Um, the first thing uh, we usually ask of our guests is uh, if you want to say a few words about uh, the director that we're covering, uh, Kishlovsky, uh, your relationship with his films, how you came to them, and. Um, kind of your overall uh, opinion of, of his work and how your relationship has evolved. Oh, sure. So to be as brief as possible, I suppose, I was first introduced to the works of Kishlovsky when uh, I was living in the United States as a teenager. I'm I guess I'm I'm 40 years old now, so I was a teenager around the the 90s or so, and that was the time when uh, 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 blue, white, and red were uh, mm -hmm. uh, they they were uh, very much marketed in in the United States, and they were released. They had uh, enjoyed very healthy releases there, and that was the first indication uh, for me of uh, who this person was but my I was very fortunate in university where I was able to take a class on Polish cinema and it was a very it was one of my favorite classes uh, ever I was so fortunate to be able to take it and one of the components or units of that class was a kind of overview of the works of Kishlovsky. So that was a great opportunity for me to 
become exposed to his his works. Um, uh, not all of them, but a good good many of them, uh, including uh, the the Decalogue. Now, I admit also that I wasn't. I, I at the time I remember I was still a university student, and I don't think the Decalogue registered as strongly for me as it did uh, later in life when I uh, revisited the Decalogue. So, uh, but his other works were very stirring for me, and I he became one of those um, uh, important lights in uh, in my sort of personal cinematic journey, as it were. So, and I, I remember I, I actually had the Faber and Faber uh, book of the Decalogue, and I was reading that ferociously uh, during the time uh, when I was younger, when the Decalogue wasn't as available as it is now. So, um, uh, he, he's, he, he's, he's always been there, uh, but I can't say to be, I can't claim to be any kind of expert uh, in the works of Kishlovsky, other than being uh, an admirer, of course. But uh, uh, with that in mind, I am a, a very great admirer of his works, including the Decalogue. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, talking uh, to you two about uh, uh, Decalogues 9 and 10 today. Yeah, I think we're both, well, all three of us are around the same age. And um, I think that three colors uh you know, as Tim mentioned on the last episode, it was a huge uh, success in Australia, and it was it was pretty uh, successful here as well. Um, obviously, earning him a director a best director nomination for Red, so um, that was that was I think that's a very common experience for uh, for people our age, especially in in the U.S. to uh, to be exposed to uh, those works, and um, we're we're going to get to those soon, but. For now, we're going to uh, cover the final two episodes of Decalogue. So uh, at, in our usual format, we will be discussing these sequentially and um, starting off with episode nine, um, which is, uh, I think, a, a one of the more powerful episodes um, overall. Uh, it's about a, a man who uh, finds out that he is impotent and uh, that there will be no cure for his impotence. And so um, he has to uh, navigate the relationship with his wife, uh, who um, they do not have any children. Um, and uh, he has to kind of work out how he feels about this uh, relationship and how, you know, she now is... Uh, is put in this situation where she either needs to go outside of the marriage to have any sort of uh, sexual relationship uh, or um, be faithful to her husband. And obviously um, things have already been complicated by the time this, uh, this episode opens. So um, Daisuke, what do you think of this uh, ninth episode of Decalogue? Just sort of your brief um, initial response to it. Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, I guess very briefly, I too, like you, find it very powerful. Um, I think it's it registers for me, um, I guess, in, in the sense that I, it, it's talking about the relationship between husband and wife. And so this is something that uh, is, is a kind of... Uh, uh, 
gateway for me to be able to uh, uh, experience the work uh, on a sort of intimate level, I suppose. Uh, you know, it, and also I love the symbolism that's uh, engaged in this work, and I love the the acting and the performances. And there are a lot of uh, things that are uh, revealed quite directly, but then there are other bits of information about this couple that are uh, not so direct. They're uh, more uh, oblique or they're much more nuanced in terms of the presentation of information. Uh, and not just the, with respect to this couple, but also are along the periphery with the other characters that we see, uh, such as the, the, the student uh, with whom um, uh, uh, she's having the affair or the the, the uh, this, uh, the patient in the hospital, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of uh, information that's uh, very gently presented, but nothing is, f uh, the full picture isn't presented, but we are left to try to put all the pieces together, uh, and not least of which being aspects of the relationship between the, the man and the woman. I think, uh, and I think we'll discuss this, there are a, a lot of aspects to the relationship that I think are left unspoken or not necessarily directly revealed in the work itself. And I think um, th that leaves a lot of room for interpretation and even further exploration as to what the relationship uh, is and how it, it's constituted in the context of uh, Kieslowski's exploration of this in, in the and the, the commandments. So uh, I, I find it to be a very powerful and engaging work on, on that level. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I think uh, it's a very strong episode. Um, very emotional and if there was ever another one that i would love to have seen expanded into a feature length one i think this is the one i would choose because there's so much nuance and interplay going on so many things that i think uh could have been i guess expanded upon i feel that the timeline is a little fractured and i had a hard time realizing uh keeping up with how much time had passed between like his diagnosis to when he started to realize there was an affair going on. So because of that, it almost kind of mm. felt like there might've been more build up to it. Or there was also a bit of confusion on my part. If the affair had been going on before um, the diagnosis had been given, because yeah. there is that moment where he kind of says you should go find someone else. And she says, no, so is there time has passed and she has finally come around to that concept or was she already seeing someone and that no is a is a knee jerk response to kind of mm. pacifying the situation and making them feel better about things. Uh, those are some of the things that uh, I would have loved to explore a little bit more in that film because I think it would change just, you know, a hair this way or a hair that way. Uh, my feelings towards it but all in all this is a very like next to uh, killing and love this is a very very strong and emotional entry um, just just the way that they uh, relate to each other is very real um, the way that they talk and the way that they figure things out and it's not overly overwrought or overly dramatic or overly uh, melodramatic. It easily could have turned into those things, but with Kishlowski's, uh way about 
you know, the directing of the film, he's he's reeled it in and made it as real as possible, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, the 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 rush home to try to uh, save the husband uh, or or the marriage, depending on sort of what her her perspective is on that situation, um, could have been significantly more elevated in tone. Um, and it, it's, it's treated in a very, um, gentle and, uh, non melodramatic fashion. Um, it's, it's interesting that you say that, that this would be a good one to expand since, uh, this actually was planned, uh, to be a third expanded episode, uh, okay. into a short film about jealousy, and Kieślowski decided that uh, he was too tired after uh, somehow he was m- magically and surprisingly too tired after shooting 10 perfect hours of television what? all at once. Uh, he he probably he, just had gas and he was exaggerating. Yeah. He was so, what a lazy guy, you know, uh, didn't have the energy. Um, no, but I, I, I agree that that this would have made a wonderful expanded episode and it feels like there's a lot more to explore even in the smaller details um the the yes. uh relationship with the patient that you mentioned dice k feels like it could have um been expanded significantly um and you know not so not even touching on the the complexities uh of the central husband and wife relationship that could have been fleshed out there's other elements here that that could have had um, been significantly um, fleshed out uh, around it. So it does feel like a very rich episode uh, in that regard. And I think, you know, it's interesting. The first time I watched this, I was a bit underwhelmed. I think partially because it's uh, so much of it is from the husband's perspective. I had a hard time connecting with his character, uh, particularly in the kind of more um, voyeuristic and uh, sort of similar to a short film about love, uh, um, icky parts of his uh, psyche. Uh, And then just the the multiple uh, almost suicide attempts that he um, that he uh, performs throughout the episode, it feels it felt difficult for me to sort of connect with him. And, um, when I rewatched it these two times, it, it felt, I, I was a much more, uh, able to kind of focus on, uh, the wife on Hanka. Um, for, for me, her not only sort of, um, realistic connection to this relationship and sort of how she's dealing with the guilt of interacting with this uh, student that she's having an affair with, but also the kind of metaphysical connection that she has to her husband, which, you know, is established in the very first moment of the episode where she kind of wakes up with a start and realizes that her husband isn't there while he, uh, seemingly simultaneously is receiving this news, um, that is, you know, obviously going to crush him. Um, once you kind of flip the perspective to her, the episode felt significantly more, um, powerful and alive to me. And I I think it can be, uh, 
sort of looked at from either perspective. But for me, that 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 flip made it um, that much more effective. Mm. Mm. If I could uh, ask or just uh, respond to that, I, I think that's really interesting, Matt, because I'm not sure. Do you think that we are meant to sympathize with the husband's character throughout? Because I was under a similar impression that I don't, there were many aspects of his character, especially when he was getting into his tapping the phone and yeah. even going into the, the, what is it, the mother's apartment. Um, and even at the end there, the confrontation when he's hiding in the wardrobe with that wonderful camera shot and when she finally discovers that he's hiding there, she, remember she is actually very almost angry at him um, and in that confrontation, uh, of course, I'm sure she feels a lot of emotions at that moment. But as it's presented, she's angry at him, and he's—it's almost like he has done something wrong by spying on her at this moment. Um, I know it's—it's it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I guess my point is that it, there there are a lot of signals that would tend towards the interpretation that I think you're you're pointing to, Matt, which is sympathy towards. Uh, the wife, uh, uh, Hanka, in this situation, uh, as well as having some sympathy towards uh, Romek in his situation in some parts, but then it, it gradually unveils itself as the work progresses. But I, I wonder how you felt about that. Do you think it was uh, strictly designed to be that way? I, I mean, I think it, the, it's a beautifully balanced episode in that regard. And in, mm-hmm. in a certain way, I think that the um, limitations of the um, uh, presentation of the timeline that Travis was talking about allow for that to happen. I think the 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 performance uh, of the of the wife, uh, the uh, Hanka, her name uh, is uh, Ava Blaschek, uh, yes. which I'm sure I'm mis- mispronouncing, um, is a, is a very nuanced and beautiful performance, and uh, I, uh, particularly in the moment where she kind of lays out her philosophy of love and, um, you know, says that love is, is not what's between your legs, but what's in your heart. It feels like there is, uh, a complexity to her delivery of those lines and her performance in that moment, because it almost feels like even though she is talking to her husband, um, if you assume that the relationship between her and the student have, has already yeah. started and she's already in the middle of this affair, which I, I think I tend towards that interpretation that this has already begun. Because first of all, obviously, this guy, even though he is finding out just now that this impotence uh, is going to be a problem forever, obviously, he this has been a problem already that he is um, encountered and, and he was hoping would be reversed in some way. So this has already been something in their relationship that they have had to deal with. The way that she is talking and sort of the look on her face almost implies to me that she is arguing to herself that despite the fact that she has um, had this affair and sort of betrayed their marriage, um, in a sexual relationship that she does not have any love for 
this student that she's having an affair with and that even though mm-hmm. she has has done this uh you know she's betrayed her husband um that does not speak to her true feelings towards him and that that in a way she has not actually betrayed him because she has loved him this whole time and it was never about love for her mm-hmm. yeah it's almost it's 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 a dual her reassuring herself that she knows she loves her husband, but not right. the student, but also kind of paving the way for him to understand later when the inevitable uh, being caught comes into play. You know, that whole, you know, love is something different than sex. We can separate the two. Um, it's a, uh, yeah, it, uh, going back, it's a, uh, it is, it's, he strikes an amazing balance of sympathies. Uh, you can feel you can feel for both the characters equally, even when even when uh, Romek is at his, or Roman Romek is that is uh, most, you know, just paranoid and devious. Um, he, it's still coming from a place of of pain because he feel uh, he feels so, you know, impotent in terms of where the relationship is going his place in the world as a man, um, he had, you know, he's dealing with that and that, you know, there's all these, (laughs) all these challenges that come along with this news and information, you know, he's a very skilled surgeon. He, he has everything else Mm -hmm. going in life and he loses this one thing. And I kept on the symbolism of the glove compartment popping open, uh, Mm -hmm. kept on making me think of like, you know, here's something that just isn't working right anymore. And the glove compartment just keeps popping open because he can't get it closed and it keeps on opening and there's yes. nothing he can do about it. It doesn't work. Um, there's all kinds of symbolism. Some symbolism is a little heavy handed, but other symbolism is yeah. very, uh, very nice and subtle. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, the, the glove compartment metaphor obviously can be extended because he finds the, the first evidence of, of yeah. the potential affair inside of it. So it's it's this this aspect of his life that isn't going right that that uncovers this deeper secret. Um, I mean, I guess I, I have a question about um, the the surveillance that he does because at, at a certain point, I mean, particularly when he's hiding in the stairwell and the guy comes in and out of the apartment, it's it's abundantly clear that they are having an affair. So I guess I'm wondering what you think the psychological motivation was for him to move even closer to their relationship and hide in this closet because obviously he didn't know that she was going to be breaking off the affair in that moment so what what do you think his goal was by being even closer in and and kind of experiencing their affair in a more in an even more obvious and intimate fashion. It, it's weird. I think that it goes back to that concept of, uh, you know, uh, where, where he is in this world now, like now that he doesn't have this part of himself and a part of that relationship, there's something missing. And it's almost like at some point we can look at it as like paranoid stalkering, kind of like following her around or, uh, I was looking at it as kind of like all of a sudden this becomes a detective story. Like he's trying to piece together these things mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, it ha- it could, it, if this became really overwrought and uh, dark, you know, this has the makings, uh, the storyline has the makings for a fantastic noir. 
um, mm. and having him follow her, it is either for me, it was either him trying to confirm his suspicions or just confirm that what she said is true, that he doesn't love her and it is just about she doesn't love the student it's just about sex and to be a part of that you know it's almost like he's torturing himself he's already in pain and he's yeah. just torturing himself more almost like he's building up a mental cash to yeah. be able to yeah, commit right. suicide and you know there's that moment where he's he's riding his bike down the hill and it's yeah. almost like he's punishing his his genitals because he's, you know, it's a very specific shot where it's it's looking right at where he's hitting the seat. And he's just bumping down this road, just smashing <laughs> smashing his genitals over and over again on this bike. And it's almost like he's punishing himself for not being able to perform. Or I, it's, it's strange. There's yeah. a, there is a sense of I'm not functioning properly and he's punishing himself for doing that. And almost part of the punishment of not being a you know a man anymore is also to be a cuckold and just yeah. witness this horrible thing to continue to make himself feel bad. And I think when you you said earlier about the wife uh, being mad at him, it's almost like a you know an admonishment mad like a like oh come on stop doing this to yourself <laughs> like mm. you know we we're in love this is this is it stop being so stop putting yourself through hell about this oh and i think if please correct me if i'm wrong gentlemen but i think so what we see in the work is he goes to the apartment twice right so the first time is um after he is able to make the copy of the key and after he goes into the apartment and he finds uh, the the postcard, and he goes back, and then we, later he we see him go at night, and we see him looking in outside, looking up at the window. We never see him actually enter the apartment. The first time we see him, he's actually waiting outside on the stairs, right? Yes. And then the next time is not soon after that, um, where. Uh, he hears on the telephone that they're going to meet. Uh, and so we then see from his point of view that he's hidden himself in the wardrobe uh, like that. So uh, it's, I think, so it, it's really interesting because um, uh, like, I, I don't know about you, but uh, the first time that he went to the apartment, he wasn't inside the apartment when the, when uh, uh, Hanka and uh, uh, the student, Marius, were having uh, their time together. Uh, I think we were only, I mean, I think he, he, uh, we understand that he knows what's going on, but it could be, on the one hand, the second time he goes into the apartment, it could be, as Travis was, uh, uh, I think, very, uh, very rightly suggesting a kind of uh, first of all, trying to get at the truth of what's going on, but assuming that he already knows the truth of what's going on, I think we, he knows by now, and we as the audience have also have also been uh, allowed information, uh, extra shots of the you know the two of them in bed, as it were, while uh, 
uh, we understand that um, uh, Romek is is outside or, or outside looking in or waiting outside on the stairwell, etc. So we know we also know that the, there's no doubt that she's having an affair. But also, the, it's interesting too because the second time that he is in the he goes to the apartment and he goes actually inside. Not only is it uh, could be seen as an ultimate means of trying to figure out the truth, you know, truth by uh, verification of truth by means of witnessing the act um, uh, as it's occurring as well. But that's, it's, it's also the ultimate moment of truth between the two of them, right? Because that's where all of the, everything, uh, all the pretense falls apart. That's where the uh, Romek and, and Hanka admit to each other uh, what has been going on? You know, Hanka says you should have been here a week ago. It, you know, right. you would have seen seen what was going. On. And he said, and he says, I was here a week ago. Um, and he, you know, that's where they begin to unravel all the pretense, and they really, in in um, an interesting way, they really do get at the truth of 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 each other. It's just a more emotional truth. So so it, it's almost like like. Like like the like you know the first time was there was still a barrier there, but then the second time when he goes, it's almost like he penetrates the barrier in a way, uh, and in, in an interesting way too. And if you're talking about a, the penetration of a barrier, since he's physically impotent, mm. but the mm-hmm. the idea is that he he's he's going inside and he's confronting the truth. So, and then that's when the two of them come together in their sort of. Uh, 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 reconciliation, as it were. You know, she says, "I won't. I will tell you the truth from now on, uh, and there will be no lies between us." And that's where he then reveals what he has been doing behind her back as well. So, in 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 an in interesting way, it, it's it's it was sort of a roundabout way. The second time, anyway, of him going into the apartment, actually him going into the inside of where all this thing is going on. That's where the the truth. Uh, uh, comes to the fore, as it were, and it, it actually becomes a, a true a reconciliation, uh, at least at, at that particular moment, anyway. So, so I, I think there's there there's uh, like a, a search for truth as well, but there's also a a kind of s- uh, symbolism that's going on as well that I think Travis was also alluding to. So, uh, very interesting stuff. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point too, because uh, there is definitely. Um, some indication through before that that happens that she is suspicious of what he's doing as well yes. um, and uh, you know especially when she asks him if he looked at the mail um, you know he's he's not a particularly good liar in that moment um, and and so the, it's not just that she's been sneaking around on him and he has these suspicions uh, of her it's it's reversed as well so both truths um that the two of them had been kind of distancing themselves from each other with um are revealed in that moment and so they are able to kind of move forward together Mm. Uh, so do you think that okay so uh we see um uh hanka and the student marius together uh, in bed for I think only one time during this entire work, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, yeah and and uh, we, of course we see a lot. We hear a lot of of uh, calling and and things like that. But but we only see the one act of them together. Very, it's very brief, of course. Um, but my point is that the on, that the only real uh, uh, depiction of of uh, physical intimacy. Uh, is that one moment in the entire work? Uh, 
Now, my question, and, and I think there's a, a close-up of, of Hanka's face during that moment where I think she feels some kind of regret or we can uh, interpret the look on her face as being some kind of regret or something that she is uh, sensing, which I think is further punctuated later when she leaves and sh she leaves the apartment and she's in the car by herself and she's got that moment with the, the car horn uh, it's almost like she's lost in some in in some kind of uh, maybe she's bereft of some kind of emotional anchor at that particular moment. So maybe this affair she realizes is 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 a little bit more uh, maybe destructive. Well, destructive is perhaps a too strong a word, but it's, it's it's not as good a thing as she might have thought it was. But my my question is: Do you think that she, her if my interpretation of her feeling at that moment is correct? Do you think that that do you do you think that she and the and the student had met before or I'm sorry had they met at any time uh other than that moment after she found out that uh mm -hmm. Romek was uh was actually diagnosed with his uh, permanent impotency in other words when he shared with her the news do you think that that might have affected the way that she was viewing the relationship that she had with Romek? Or do you think, or was there something else that was going on that might have led to the, 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 the way that she decided to end the relationship? I guess another way to put it is, what do you think was the start or the cause of her wanting to end the relationship with the student, the way that she forcefully tried to do at the end there? Do you think it had something to do with uh, the... The diagnosis that was uh, made final by the 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 doctor friend that that uh, 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 th and she realized that that was indeed the case and there was no going back with with any cure. Do you think that that had something to do with that, or do you think it was the fact that she knew that he, uh, uh, Romic was getting suspicious right. and she decided to end it before anything blew up in her face? But uh, or do you think there was something else going on? I guess. That's a that's a good question. Um, I think my interpretation, and this is where that timeline thing kind of falls into place, where I wish there was a little yeah. bit more of a, you know, definitive where things are. But I mean, it could, I, I I definitely think that once the realization to her that <clears throat> their relationship has altered significantly, that yeah. she has she, there is no for lack of a better word, there's no thrill anymore to this uh, affair. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, there is this excitement and danger to being caught and this, you know, of, of a seeking relationship outside of the marriage. And I think that might have been part of her kind of thing. You know, she's not getting at home. She doesn't understand why. There's this confusion about what's going on. Does her husband not love her? Well, here's this young kid who's doting on her, so let's have this affair. And then once the realization is like it's not his fault, there's something mm -hmm. physically wrong with him. Now this relationship yeah. has soured. Like it, that has a that that is my sense of of what is kind of going on, because it's very clear that well, you know she has that one last time that one time where she's realized you know she's not into it. You can see it on her face. She's a million miles away thinking about something else, and this kid is 
too young to understand that uh, there is no mutual appreciation in this uh, <laughs> in this uh, sexual encounter going on here, and uh, and it's uh, I think that's where she takes her turn to decide that this is going to be over because between that relationship and the phone call in which she says let's meet, it's only like two scenes apart. But she's you know he says we haven't seen each other for weeks. And so there has been a, a, a significant amount of time passing between their last time they've had sex where he's outside the door listening to when she breaks it off with him. So, you know, just that act of her finally making that realization, I think that is her turning point, which I think is a um, which is great that you brought up, because I think that's that's an important key to this is that we realize, you know, us as an audience realize that this affair might have been happening before the diagnosis it isn't the uh you know like breaking the waves in which you know go out and have sex because i can't do this for you anymore you should enjoy yourself but then come back and tell me about it so i can enjoy it with you kind of idea isn't that also another there's another movie that has that same premise with a man wings of the dove or something like that oh yeah yeah, the right. uh, the Helena Bonham Carter uh, yeah. Henry James. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, there's another. Yeah, that movie also has the same kind of premise of I can't mm. be the man you want. Go off and and have these affairs, and that's the sense that kind of like what I got because of the timeline that this was a you know the doctor suggested it to him, he suggested it to her, and then it happens. But I think that's the moment where I realized that there's no clarity in the timeline, but I truly believe that she was having this affair before the diagnosis. Yes, I agree too. I think they're both, both of these elements, um, why she, when she started the affair and why she broke it off are open to interpretation. But I definitely come down on the side that she was having this affair previously and that, um, and that she, uh, broke it off because she realized that she, wanted to be with her husband and only her husband. Um, even if she, even if I do think she was getting tired of the kind of sneaking around element of it, um, I don't think that she broke it off because she was afraid that she was going to be discovered. Um, mm. so, so I, I do think that ultimately her, the, the arc of her character in this movie is the realization that she, uh, loves her husband and that um, this other element of their relationship, even if it's gone forever, is not as important to her as the fact that she wants to be with this person for the rest of her life. And um, so, you know, I think it's an, I think for her, it's very much an internal struggle um, through the film. Um, you know, whereas his character has uh, a more um, external arc, uh, which I guess you could, if you wanted to, to read into the symbolism of what I just said, uh, could be uh, taken as a sexual um, uh, relationship for, for both of them as well. Um, but, I, but I do definitely come down on that side in terms of, of her character's uh, motivations for each of these actions. If this was an '80s American movie, this the whole story would have been told from Marius's perspective of the student. <laughs> he's hot for teacher. Well, Jeez. he's he he's he's like 
he feels very much like an empty shell, like like a real puppy dog in this movie. Oh, there's, completely. There's just no, no other kind of personality traits that he has other than the fact that he's kind of obsessed with this older woman. Yeah, it's a total, it's a total like, uh, you know, yeah, inexperienced love, like completely... You know, oh, she doesn't. She doesn't want to have sex anymore. I'm gonna ask her to marry me. Yeah, I'm gonna. Go, I'm gonna do a grand romantic gesture and go meet her at the mountain. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> well, I think know? that that aspect of the film, um, not to jump too far ahead, but I, I, I do think that aspect of it felt a bit contrived. Like the fact that that um, you know that Roman yeah. would just happen to see him getting his skis on the on the car and driving away. Um, you know, I th- I think the 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 element of that that I think Kieślowski is able to get away with it because of the other odd coincidences and and the almost psychic mm-hmm. connection that Hanka has to her husband. I think that aspect yes. of it allows it to yeah. kind of work without uh, taking you out of the story. But it does feel like this this thing where it's like, oh, like he just happens to see him and then <laughs> she encounters the student and immediately knows that he must know that this happened. And you know, like it's it's all very like uh, designed to kind of lead up to this final conclusion. But um, I think because of those aspects of the story at the beginning, it's it's it, it works. Yeah. I will say it was a very interesting form of suicide, death by cycling. Um, <laughs> well, he tries you know, it earlier as well, right? He just sort of like drifts into the water. <laughs> it doesn't go well. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, the car too, right? Yeah. Does he kind of just kind of go off road a little bit and then. Yeah. And that's where and that's, we first see the witness, obviously. Yeah, that's yes, when we see the witness. Right. And he does the second time too, right? Yeah, when he, when yes. he crashes his bike. Yes, okay. That's right. And the wheels just keep on spinning. Right. I was going to ask, do you do you think that those first two were actually, uh, I mean, they might have been half-hearted suicide attempts or they could be interpreted that way. But do you, especially the first one, I, I always find it, I'm not sure, it, it doesn't feel like a suicide attempt yeah. to me. I mean, it does feel half-hearted, of course. And I think what makes those two earlier incidents different from the third incident is the fact that he is by now i think i think the first two were more driven by the fact that he just of his of his impotency yes whereas the third is driven by the fact that he real he, he thinks that um uh she is once again resuming her affair and he is now crushed or something like that so or even so, uh, more even more like he's upset that she has lied like they yes. just come to a point where no more lies and then that happens and now he has to assume she's lying and bam right yeah i mean the first two to me before you know that uh he has the capacity or or sort of is is um you know troubled enough um in his uh, emotional in, uh, interactions to uh, actually want to take his own life. Yeah. They feel a little bit more like, you know, when you've had a shitty day and you just sort of flop face down onto the bed, like there's, yeah. they're, they're very kind of like give up on life, pathetic kind of just pull over to the side of the road mm-hmm. and, 
you know, slowly drift into uh, in, into the curb as opposed mm-hmm. to genuine um, attempts to hurt his body in some way. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I think it it, it does those moments. Um, the way that they are described in kind of reviews or essays on this film have uh, have more uh, kind of definitive language around them because of the third attempt where he actually does um, seriously hurt himself. Um, yes. Because I think without that, they do feel a little bit just like symbols of his impotence. Yeah, I, I've, I always felt like the second one was less a suicide attempt, more as just punishment. Like he's just punishing himself because it is such a the, the, the visual the visual cues and the camera angles on that is so specific to how his how the rocks are bumping the seat and really, you know, really attacking his his uh, his genitals. It kind of made me, you know, really think, you know, OK, he's just mad at himself or maybe he's trying to like beat himself awake again you know kind of like well i got in that bike accident and i lost my erection maybe if i get into it maybe if i recreate it we can bring it back around mm. like an amnesia patient hitting himself on the head again right mm. yeah that, let's talk about some of the um visual symbols in this movie i mean especially the mm. the phone and the uh and the mirrors that that we yes. encounter mm. um, throughout the film i mean the the phone in particular in this episode feels like it has more kind of symbolic weight than almost anything else in the Decalogue. It's yeah. it's foregrounded so frequently, and it's such a key part of the story. So I I was wondering um, what you guys thought of of that aspect of it even if it's not necessarily you know a definitive meaning but just what why you think that was incorporated so strongly into the the telling of the story i agree 100% about the use of the phone as a symbol in this and i'm so glad you invited me to discuss Decalogues 9 and Decalogues 10 because I think the phone and also the stamps yes. are the two big symbols in the Decalogue. Uh, there are many other symbols, of course, but uh, speaking of the phone, you're right, it's it's shown in, in the foreground of shots. It's also shown in the foreground of shots that it's not even used yeah. in the scene. Uh, I've r- recalled the, the scene where uh, he's in the hospital and uh, the, the uh, Ola, the patient, comes in, and the, the start of that is actually the phone, and it's still kept in the foreground as the camera sort of tilts to see her in the doorway. Um, so it's always there present, and of course it becomes very prominent uh, uh, as a narrative device in terms of uh, uh, Romick's uh, ability to tap the phone and listen into the conversations as mm-hmm. she is making calls out or calls are coming in, or um, that sort of, or I guess when she is making calls out. Um, also, there's the great moment where he, um, uh, he is in the mother's apartment and he is calling out to, I think, what is it? He is calling out to the the, the, the student's house. And then yes. she and then the wife is is at the at her job and she's trying to call the mother's house because she might be there might be some suspicions beginning to get sown at that moment in in her mind right and so she tries to call, and then and then um, they and then the husband and wife then are managed they they manage to get in touch 
um, or, or she calls again and he picks up and she says, I tried to call and he's and he lies and he said, oh, you must have uh, dialed the wrong number or something. So it's 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 great because at that moment, right, the, the phone is sort of the symbol of I mean, to put it in very basic terms, I suppose. Uh, the phone could be seen as being a symbol of a, of of a kind of a, a disintegration, if you will, uh, or a, the symbol of maybe distrust on his yeah. part with respect to the wife, but also as a sense of of it's the means by which they lie, uh, or or he lies to her, uh, he spies on her, so it, it's it's a means by which he is able to deceive uh, in this relationship. But but what's really interesting about this symbol is that by the end it. It it almost 180s itself. It becomes a, a, an optimistic symbol, I would suggest, because after the uh, she's uh, uh, what is it? Uh, she goes to the ski resort Zakopane, and she's trying desperately to come back. and And she she gets the she comes back and she sees the note on the phone. Or and before that, she's trying desperately to connect with uh, Romek with through the public payphone. Right. But there's someone else there, and so the the time is is a little bit out of whack. So she's not able to to uh, contact him uh, immediately. Uh, so there's a lot of um, uh, 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 sort of what do you call it? Um, uh, lack of communication on that part. So that furthers the symbolism of the of the phone, the ironic symbolism as the phone being a, a sort of symbol of lack of communication on the one hand. But it comes quite beautifully. Uh, it turns into an optimistic symbol at the end because the moment where the two of them connect, which closes out the work, is indeed her connecting with him over the phone right with him uh, in the hospital uh, he has survived uh, his his uh, suicide attempt or accident he's obviously very deeply uh, injured but you can sort of tell the there is a smile or some kind of satisfaction on his face at least i can see it because he realizes that she has come back. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, so and it, he so said, it becomes the ultimate. It, it 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 flips itself in such a beautiful way as being being almost this ominous thing to being this this means by which the two of them really make a great connection, which closes out the work. Yeah. No, I agree with you, Daisuke. I think uh, I think the most basic symbol that this phone can take is is communication. Right. That's the number one reason why we use the phones is to uh, communicate to each other. And I think throughout the throughout the throughout the episode, they're either communicating poorly or they need to communicate. And then as it, you know, they can't really reach each other until the very end, where they finally are, you know, able to talk to each other very clearly. Because otherwise, the phone is, you know, it's it's there, it's present, but it's being used for, uh, you know, devious purposes. They're lying to each other or they're making plans around each other or they're ignoring the phone and it isn't until the end where you know they finally she gets through to him it's almost like she is finally getting through to him like i love you you idiot don't do stupid stuff you know i told you i'm not gonna lie to you anymore and he finally has that moment where you know he does have that smile of okay this is we're communicating again this is this is what it's about and it's uh it's a really beautiful moment. I think Peter Sobosinski, uh the DP, mm. um this episode is very much about people looking and us us looking at things. Like it's and it sounds such a stupid basic concept, but 
um, very strongly. This is about a point of view and in a bit of voyeurism, like we're watching what's going on and people and we're seeing what people are seeing. Um, you know, we see him see the phone. We see him see her. We see her like the, the way the camera is moving, the way the camera is framing. It's all about this perspective of watching, um, which is very interesting because the concept of the uh, the commandment that this is based on, uh, you should not covet your neighbor's wife, um, which is, you know, you. Yeah, right. This is you should not yeah. cover your neighbor's wife. Right. Okay. Mm. Yeah, this concept of you should not cover your neighbor's wife uh, begins with that idea of looking across the fence at your neighbor and seeing your seeing his his wife in the window and you wanting that. And so a lot of it is people looking at each other and and like seeing something that they can't have. And it's a very interesting flip by having him coveting his own wife. He he's watching her because he can't have her. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's the fact that he can't have his own wife and that's the covetous nature of this relationship, mm-hmm. which is uh which is a very unique perspective on it. This easily could have been, you know, you know, you set up in that uh in that uh in the apartment complex and someone is you know, this this you right. know mm-hmm. a short film about love is basically that if it was a man who is married looking at the girl across the street who has all these lovers and how much he wants to be with her. Um, but it's instead it's internalized as I want to have my own wife and I can't. And now I'm going into these, you know, fits of depression and doing things that I normally wouldn't do, which ends up becoming self-destructive behavior. Um, it's fascinating that that's the that's the angle he took. That's what makes this so unique is that's the angle he took on it when it could have been such a, a basic done a million times concept before. It's really it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think the the uh, cinematography in this episode is some of the best in in all of Decalogue, um, and I mean, you could argue the phone aspect of it in particular is a bit uh, heavy handed, but I I think Dice K you laid it out so beautifully um, the way that it is not just used for one purpose or. Um, to to tell one story about these characters that it they uh Kieślowski is able to utilize this uh very simple and basic device um in so many ways that um the fact that it is so heavily foregrounded doesn't get tiring over the course of this hour in fact it is continually surprising i mean for me the way that the setup of the I'm, I got to rush home to save my husband was constructed, especially with the the other person waiting to use the public phone. It felt like a moment where she was going to call. The phone was going to ring right as he walked or, you know, right after he walked mm-hmm. out the door. And instead yeah. it rings. She makes it in time. You know, she, he he should pick up the phone. Yeah. And the fact that he hears the ringing and decides not to pick up the phone, uh, I think, makes that moment much more interesting and powerful than it would have been if it had just been this, uh, oh, shucks, we just barely missed each other. Um, so, so I do think that aspect of it is really powerful um, and effectively done. Um, the mirrors in this film, you know, I think in a certain way, underscore what you're talking about travis in terms of coveting 
thy neighbor's wife, um, you know, you're looking at the reflection of yourself in the mirror, that, that, that opening moment where she looks, uh, for her husband, when she's laying in bed, she doesn't look, she doesn't turn to look at where he is. Uh, he would be in real life. She looks in the mirror to see if he's next to her and he's not there. Um, and then that's again, underscored later on with that, uh, really wonderful shot, um, where you can see him reflected in the mirror as she comes into, I think the bathroom, um, and they've got this two shot that is yeah. in reality only showing you one person and, uh, the other person is a reflection. So it looks like they are not looking at each other at all. when in fact they are, um, they are looking at each other. So again, it's uh, this underscoring of the initial disconnect. Um, I think the best moment of that though is when they're in the elevator and we've, yes. we've got these alternating mm -hmm. spotlights on the two of them as they're talking. It's, it, you know, it's, it's a very simple way to um, underscore the intensity of that scene, but the way that it's executed is so magical to me. It just has this very deep um, metaphysical quality to it that I think is, is indicative of the best moments in Kieślowski's work where it just, it feels like you are um, in this other world and yet you are really firmly grounded in these characters and their relationship with each other. It's, it's a very beautiful moment. Yeah, I agree. That's a beautiful scene. That is such an interesting point, too, because that elevator scene, I mean, the, the, the two scenes that you bring up matter. I think those are the great examples of, uh, of this camera work. Uh, the, 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 the mirror, the fractured nature of the characters in the mirror in the bathroom, that comes right after she, uh, right after he goes to the apartment for the first time. So it's almost like that's after he has realized what they're doing so it, it's almost like the ultimate um uh uh low point if you will and uh where, where he's asking you know you right. were a physics student or so, you you know you know this thing about uh the displacement of uh, of something in water and the weight of something in water or something like that so that's also a, a further uh uh right and the book that he finds in the glove compartment is a physics book so that's he's he's further sort of antagonizing her in, in an interesting way so that's in an interesting way uh, the the them at their their lowest moment but the elevator scene is so fascinating fascinating because it comes so early in the film right yes. right after he comes home and uh he, he just before he is going to tell her what's what he has been diagnosed with so it's almost like that should be the moment where they should be really intimate with each other or they should be close to each other but even at this moment there is a sense of distance between them Yes. Yeah. Which and and that I think further gives evidence to this interpretation that I think the two of you give as to the start of the the affair. It it might have happened earlier. Also, this idea of the impotence it must have had its start earlier than the point in time at which we, the viewer, join the story. So, but it's so fascinating that that moment comes so early. It it shows immediately. At least I think it can show uh, the the. Uh, the fragmentation of the relationship, the fact that one is blacked out of uh, in shadow 
you, I, right? Am I right in remembering? Oh, you never see the two yeah. of them. You never see the two of them right. uh, lit together. No. One is either in darkness while the other is lit, or vice versa. Right. But they are never together, and that 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 is a continuation of I think the characters. I think also up to that point, the characters are never seen necessarily together, or they're not necessarily seen facing each other until the moment later when they are, uh, you know, in their bedroom, as it were. But uh, even early on, we see these hints of a distance or a fragmentation in their relationship. So, yeah, that that's a, a great scene to bring up. It's also interesting, yeah. too, it hadn't occurred to me until just now. Um, there is an implication that they uh, are not speaking on the phone before the episode begins. I mean, he's ostensibly gone on this big trip mm. uh, to Zagreb and then gone to visit his uh, doctor friend. And she doesn't know any of this information. She's he's telling her his whole trip. So you know, it, the the implication is like when she goes skiing, that they're not going to call each other, that they haven't been speaking. And obviously, you know, when he comes home, rather than rush right. to see his wife that he uh, may have missed or that he ha- and now has some some big and and terrible news to tell her, he he hesitates and doesn't actually want to go in and she sort of wrangles him upstairs. Um, so there, there is this, uh, perception that even before the film begins that they are, they have been drifting apart and they no longer, uh, have that connection that they gain in the, in the final scene. That's an excellent point. The other thing about the phone, um, that I wanted to just, touch on we we try not to to speak to films that we haven't covered yet that that he hasn't made at this point and into the future um but the 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 implication of the connectivity through the phone will and the surveillance obviously will come up um in in our discussion of red because that is a significant part of that film um and and that film symbolism as well the way that that uh characters are connected um obviously and it's the same cinematographer yes yes yes, yes. <laughs> yes. uh not I mean, not surprising is... that he would pull him back yeah. in for that film and 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 mm-hmm. and for for white obviously there is the uh the impl- the impotence uh element mm-hmm. and sort of the the sexual jealousy and um that aspect of this episode reflected in in that film um and finally um in blue the uh, invention of a composer, the, the the structuring of a thematic element of the film around uh, classical music is uh, mm. is a, a significant portion of that film as well. So really, the 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 three colors um, to a significant degree, oh, and not to mention um, that the uh, the patient's heart problem uh, will yes. come into play in uh, in the next film that we'll cover. So this this one one hour episode. Um, of of TV that he produced here informs the rest of his career uh, quite substantially. So it it is interesting. Um, just just to note that as we move forward. Um, but I wonder. Go ahead. I, I wonder if it's because he he didn't get to fully explore mm. it by not making this into a feature that this became the seeds for those other films that he could finally explore those things in a more fully realized or yeah. you know fashion. Um, but I do want to talk about the uh, the uh, the heart patient um, and the uh, the invented uh, composer that I just mentioned as being uh, 
um, foreshadowing for the later films because um, this is a pretty substantial kind of side storyline in this episode. And that's not something that we are necessarily accustomed to in this series. These are, even though I think there's, there's a substantial amount of um, detail and complexity to each of these episodes, there's very rarely a kind of B plot or um, a, a character that does not factor into the main story uh, in any significant plot way. Uh, who nevertheless has a pretty interesting story and a kind of a deep inner life uh, of her own. Uh, so it kind of stands out to me as unique uh, in in the Decalogue. Do you, uh, do you guys have thoughts, I think, not only kind of on her character, but how she does or does not figure into the larger story being told here? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really great question. Uh, I think, like with many other things in the Decalogue, there are many facets to this. Uh, One aspect, I think, is a kind of sexual attraction that Romek has towards her. And I think we can interpret this to exist by little gestures that we we see uh, zoomed in or closed up, or uh, the the camera closes in on uh, little gestures with her hand, for instance, when she's saying, uh, you know, her mother wants her to be successful, and what does she want? Just a little bit, and she does that little gesture with her fingers. Is that a dick and joke? I, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't, uh, I, I don't want to, uh, I wasn't going to say anything directly, but uh, I mean, it, it, the timing of it is quite interesting. The yeah. fact that it, you know, we just saw, I think, a few scenes earlier, the scene with the, the, you know, filling up the gas pump or right. something, right? So, you know, I mean, uh, you know, my Dr. Strangelove radar was, was sort of on high <laughs> alert, I suppose. So perhaps that was, that was my radar just picking that up. But uh, I think also, but uh, more generally, we also see this continued um, in uh, close-ups of her hand and it and it runs down her I think her knee in a later scene when she's uh, you know making hand gestures and talking about Vanden Bunda Myra so uh, I, I think we can interpret this relationship on one level to be a, a kind of maybe sexual attraction on his part or maybe on uh, on her part towards him as well who knows but uh, there is something there that is, for whatever reason, not acted upon, if we are to assume that it's there. So um, that could lend itself to a further uh, interpretation of Roman or Romic's character, um, and it might lead to some, maybe unanswerable questions, of course, but might lead to some further questions about his his own... Uh, 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 fidelity, if you will, to the to his marriage, um, and not to say that he is he's ever been unfaithful or anything like that. But we never know. We don't know these things, um, and uh, so I think that's one level. Um, another level is uh, about her story itself, and her story itself. So uh, please correct me if I get my details wrong. But the way she has described it is, her mother wants her to be very successful, and the only way that she can be successful as a singer is by getting this operation and uh, the operation is we understand it, it it's it's somehow 
perhaps some it's not a simple operation um, and it's an operation that perhaps uh, might have some risk even to her life although we're not quite clear about that but it, the implication is certainly there based on their first conversation um, and there are certain risks involved I think due in large part to the fact that it's not a necessary operation so do I have that right so far I yeah. think so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so there's a lot. I, I mean, there, and then, um, so there is already a lot there about, there's a great setup there about how he is conveying to her certain truths about the operation, right? She is asked, she, she, uh, you know, she, uh, she says that he will, t- uh, the doctors will say that, th- uh, that Romick will tell her uh, the truth about this. And she indeed tells her what we understand to be the truth about it, that it's not a necessary operation and that there are some risks. Uh, so that also is a, a nice gateway into his character in a way, uh, in terms of how he, at least at this level, seems to be uh, able on on a on a professional level anyway, maybe to say some kind of truths. He doesn't seem to be um, uh, uh, sugarcoating anything, as it were. Uh, which is a nice, if that's the case, and that further uh, creates a nice contrast to the fact that he is actually lying to his wife while he seems to be telling some truths to this young patient. Which also then further might suggest that perhaps there is some level of dare I say it, uh, attraction or intimacy uh, with this young woman. Uh, but again, that I think that line of interpretation, uh, while it can exist, I think there are some things that are not quite uh, answerable in, in the context of this episode. Um, and then finally, I think the, the level of, of uh, what is this, this idea of, of uh, a kind of, how should I put it, it it's, it's, it's like... <clears throat> I, I'm not going to be uh, able to articulate this very well, but I always get the sense of, of uh, in the Decalogue, this idea of biology bisecting with uh, uh, emotion or desire of some part, of some kind, right? And we see this in, in many instances in the Decalogue of, of characters that are uh, trying to confront this idea of wanting something or desiring something and then the, the idea of, of, a, of a biological event a, a surgery or, or, or a sexual uh, uh, encounter or something like that, something to do with the physical, uh, encountering the, the, the emotional or the desire. Um, so this is, I think, another example of that. You know, this is another character. Um, maybe it's not her own desire. Maybe it's more of her mother's desire. Who knows? Or people around her. But there is a desire that's bisecting or it's coming, uh, it, it's going to uh, cross with this idea of, of, uh, of, of, the, bi- of the biological uh, and here the biological is the surgery itself. And then once that happens, there's an interesting twist on that, um, which is she seems to be, after the surgery is completed, she seems to be a different woman. And she, in fact, she says this uh, to Romek at the, during their final scene together. She feels like a different woman. And in fact, it feels like the relationship between the two of them ends there. So I, I, that, it's an interesting twist on this idea of, 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 bio, of the biological sort of, uh, 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 of uh, uh, intersecting with the emotional. I mean, we'll see this again, I think, in Decalogue 10, I mean, there's a surgery, there's a very important surgery that happens in that 
work as well. But I, I find that it's it's a, it's an interesting uh, uh, through line that we see elsewhere, and continued on here. But I apologize for not being able to articulate myself well. You did a oh, great no, job. You articulated yourself <laughs> fantastically. <laughs> no, that's uh, those are some. You brought up some very good points. The physic, the biological being attached to the emotional, um, is something I didn't consider. Um, I guess I was looking at her character as a as a symbol of putting yourself through something difficult to make someone else happy. Mm. Um, yeah. You know her her having to do like because it's weird she doesn't seem to be interested in going through the surgery to make her you know because it's going to make her a better singer and her mom wants her to be successful and because she really likes her singing and she thinks she's wonderful at it and there's that concept you know that idea of you having to put yourself at risk uh to get some sort of reward and to also make others happy and there's that idea that you know and it's not it doesn't appear on Romek's face it's not like he makes this realization i just saw that as a symbol of that idea of you know you might have to be at risk to finally you know and then you also got this concept of he's mending a broken heart mm. um or you can even go as much as you know he gets inside of right. her and changes her which is also you know that kind of idea you know i'm a different woman now you know he has been inside of her and is you know he has another way of kind of uh making making people happy it's not just about his uh you know standard sex there's other means to find some sort of gratification um but i find it interesting that he doesn't share any of this with his wife um he you know she actually he actually lies to her at some point and says like he lost a patient uh to help explain his his just crushing sadness at the fact that he's realized that his wife is having this affair which is uh which is an interesting uh lie to tell yeah that is such an interesting point travis I, i forgot to bring that up but i actually thought at that point when i first saw this i actually thought that she actually the patient actually did die mm. and yeah. yeah and 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 when i remember when i first saw the then the scene of them together right uh at the, the their last scene oh she's alive i was actually uh very surprised so upon rewatch yes i i realized that 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 was probably a, uh some kind of lie to cover up his his agitation at that moment uh, but that, I, I think that's just another wonderful um, a sleight of hand that uh, uh, you know Kishlovsky and and Pishovitz here were really giving us uh, in terms of the presentation of information as well. In and uh, it's something that we understand at this point moment that there is some. Uh, risky surgery that will be had. And we don't know what's what's going to happen. We don't see the surgery play out, of course. We just see the discussions and that's it. But, but uh, yeah, I, I remember that moment feeling very shocked, actually, uh, only to then be surprised that she is, in fact, alive. And that actually is a further revelation about uh, of, uh, of Romek and his character. Perhaps he is uh, willing to lie uh, more often than not 
if indeed that was a lie. Who knows? Maybe it was another surgery. I don't know. We don't know what, what his day mm-hmm. was like uh, before he went uh, at night there. But assuming that it is a lie, and I, I think it is, then uh, that is further evidence of his sort of duplicitous nature, perhaps. Uh, again, that's furthered by this subplot, as you as you so nicely put it, of the of the patient. Yeah. Well, it also might be just a purely uh, duality of the fact that she's having this affair and he's somewhat having in a, a different kind of affair with this patient. Um, there are obviously the sexual implications that you mentioned, Dice K and the Freudian impl- implications that, that you mentioned, Travis, um, gl- which I'm glad you brought up just the fact that this guy is a surgeon. He penetrates people for a living and now he's not able to, uh, penetrate his wife. Um, I, I mean, again, when he, uh, gets this uh, record of this um, yes. composer and is listening to the record. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he, he lies to her there as well, or, or at least he withholds the knowledge of why he's listening to this yes. record in the first place. Um, so there uh, it, it further establishes this sense of distrust between the two of them, that they have yes. these separate lives um, outside of their... Um, domestic space um. and I think there's even a further acknowledgement of se- of awareness or self-awareness on her part on uh, Hanka's part because doesn't she say oh I've heard this before or something like that which I think is it can be interpreted I think that's such a, a profound moment because it, it could be further fuel to the interpretation that there has been discord in the past mm. uh, you know I've heard this song before you know if, if if the song in this context means some kind of maybe feelings outside of the marriage if we want to put it in that context so uh, but again there it's many things are left unex, unexplained unanswered but um, I, but yes, she does say, I, I think she says, I've, I've heard this before. Yes, I think I've heard it before. And is that that yeah. is that the same scene where she gives him the, the giant jacket, the like talking heads jacket? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he pulls up the sleeves. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then and then she. <laughs> this is not my beautiful house. <laughs> and then she receives the call, right, from yes, yes, from Mariusz. Yes. Um, yes. And pretends that it's, or you know, she's kind of giving the curt answers to avoid <laughs> being discovered by her husband as he walks into the other room and sort of peers at her through uh the doorway from the from the other room um it's it again it it feels like a scene a just sort of classic example of of them being fully disconnected from each other not not being aware of uh what is going on psychologically or even knowing what size jacket your husband should be wearing Mm. Do you think this whole uh, all this stuff would have been uh, would have been better served if the doctor at the beginning of the uh, episode had just better bedside manner and spoke <laughs> to him in a different way? I find that to be very intriguing. You know, it'd be like uh, you've had a you've had a long life, right? You've enjoyed time yeah. with your children. All right, well, it's cancer, so it's over. That you know, just that, that, that's what you're going to deal with here. <laughs> You've yeah, had sex with lots of women. Yeah, how many women have you had? That's that's yeah. probably enough. See, you're fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You've read a bunch of books, right? So you're losing your eyes. You've read books. Be happy about it. And, and doesn't he say you should get divorced? Yes, he does. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's the first thing. Yeah, you have a young yeah. wife. Yeah. 
Well, and that make your wife happy and leave her. Yeah, and well, this leads into the other thing, the the sort of big final big thing that that we should discuss, which is their um, desire to have children. um, Now that that they're not able to have children, it's interesting. Like they they had decided we're not going to have children, and now that they physically can't, uh, at least the old fashioned way, have children, uh, which was probably the only way in Poland in the 1980s, there probably wasn't a lot of IVF going on there. Um, then, uh, that's when they decide that they are, uh, going to adopt, uh, and, you know, save the marriage through a, (laughs) through a baby. That always works. Um, That always works. I never put stress on any relationship. Um, but do do you guys think that's just kind of like there as, as, uh, the implication of them wanting to start their relationship anew and, and sort of build, build uh, a family together or do you think that there's something else at play um i definitely i think i think it's that it's 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 uh it's a it's a return to kind of kind of like traditional things um if we can't be a couple because of this physical thing you know you know couples are because of sex we're we're together sexually um and they don't have the you know in in relationships or that that i've i'm in my marriage you know you start out as a couple and it is a sexual and physical relationship and then it changes over time and with children it changes and becomes a different sort of relationship you know there's still these sexual and romantic feelings as well but now you become partners in a different uh undertaking uh Mm -hmm. raising children which is a, a you know that's where you know your relationship changes because now you're forming this new bond and this new relationship which is this agreement to uh help this other human being uh reach its fullest potential and go on to do things in its life um and i think it's almost kind of like now that they've lost that ability to have this second relationship uh they you know they they took it for granted that this would be the you know another form of their relationship and this is the only way that they can think of traditionally to kind of keep their relationship together is by, you know, moving forward and having this. And you, and it's funny because they both say we never wanted to have kids, but they are both ecstatic at the concept of having kids as soon as they talk about it out loud, which is kind of interesting because it goes back to their not communicating mm. very well, I guess. You know, maybe one of them said it offhand and then they both took it for granted that the other one didn't want kids. And so they just didn't. But then, you know, now that one says, well, I would like to have it's a shame we didn't have kids. Oh, would you like to have kids? I would have loved to have kids. Me, too. Let's have kids. (laughs) And it's like, oh, wait, here's another whole aspect of each other that we didn't realize because we took it for granted that the other, you know, we knew the other enough and that sex was enough to kind of keep us going. It's a it's a very it's a very interesting. It's a very. Yeah mature idea at the same time is also yeah. being very immature the idea that children will save a marriage it's not you know it's un- yeah. <laughs> don't put the onus on the children mm-hmm. to uh, fix everything they're not band-aids but mm. do you, i i i i agree 100 percent with uh, what you said there travis and i guess i would add uh i guess a couple questions on that on the point of the children. So the first question I'd have is, is do we know exactly that it was a sort of a mutual decision 
between the the two of them not to have children. I know that there was an exchange early on. There was a wonderfully uh, shot moment of the two of them in bed in yeah. darkness. You just see their eyes lit, uh, and um, uh, there's a discussion. You don't even see their lips move. I think, but you just hear the discussion about we ne- we just we never wanted to have children, right? And I think the the it's the the subtitles on the version that I see, it says we. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. implies a mutual decision on some part, but it's never touched on. I think the only other moment where we see a direct reference to it is in the mother's apartment when the two of them are reconciling and um, they say, you know, I will, she says, I will uh, tell you the truth from now on. And I think during that exchange, doesn't she say that you were right, you know, we should adopt. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. So that oh, that right. that implies that maybe it was more him wanting children or wanting to adopt more than her. Which then, if that's the case, that explains also why she seems to be very uh, much uh, uh, on. Uh, she's on the ball when it comes to talking to the lawyer, figuring out it takes longer to adopt a boy yeah. than it does to adopt, a, you know, the things that we know. So she's getting all that stuff done, almost as though she's trying to make amends uh, for for whatever uh, decision that she might have made, if we yeah. interpret that moment to mean that yeah. maybe she was the one who didn't want children of the two of them. Um, so I don't know what you made of that moment. And also, related to that, what do you make of the moment where we see... Uh, Romek, uh, later in the film, I mean, I'm calling it a film, it's an episode, but I'll call it a film, but but when we see him, a quick shot of him looking out the window, and we, what does he, what does he see but the, the young girl from, it's uh, Decalogue 7? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Anya, the young girl who's the subject of Decalogue 7. I mean, I've, I mean, the, of course there are many cameos uh, yes. throughout the work of the Decalogue. But I find that this particular cameo seems to have much more significance uh, than any other cameo, especially yeah. in the context of this idea of of children and their relationship, as you touched on, Travis. So I, I, I was wondering if what you thought about that. Well, in the script, um, she's she actually opens this episode. They show her ah. um, playing yeah. um, and then get to the uh the couple so uh clearly uh that relationship was on uh Kishlovsky's mind and Paishevitz's mind when they were writing this episode um I think to your first question I believe he brings up adoption in the initial conversation that they're having where he said we never wanted to have kids um mm. So I think that was maybe what she was referencing later on, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's not the first time that he has um, brought up the prospect of adoption. So um, I I agree with you 100% though, that she is pursuing the adoption with such, uh, uh, in such a vigorous fashion because she is trying so desperately to show him that she wants to make this work. I mean, even in that train sequence, she's just constantly saying to him, uh, you know, uh, 
should I call you? Like, uh, she does not want to yeah. go on this trip for sure. And she's doing it because he wants, he thinks that it's a good idea for them to be apart in this moment. Um, and, and I guess part of that is, uh, unclear in the sense that it's, it's possible that he's just pushing her away to see how she'll respond to that. Um, as opposed to wanting to actually be apart from her. So again, it just kind of underscores that she's trying to make this connection with him and to, and eliminate the aspects of her life that were pushing them apart. And he is still struggling with this reality that, that he's living in. No, I, yeah, I can see that completely. I also like to bring up the aspect that, you know, we have a character, the male character, who's confronted with the fact that he's losing his masculinity due to it being tied to his impotence. Um, And one of the things that is a huge change, which, you know, you standardly you want uh, in movies, men want a strong boy as their child because they want to pass on their things. And he's very happy to have a girl. And I wonder if that's part of his maturation of accepting that these, you know, male standards he doesn't have to compete with, but also uh, after witnessing the girl he performed surgery with Mm -hmm. that he kind of, you know, there is that sense. It's also kind of a father daughter relationship. The two of them have, you know, he's giving her advice and helping her with things as much as he's also, you know, we're lingering on her in, in a more, you know, romantic sense and also seeing the little girl outside the window from episode seven uh you know he has this sense that you know that is that is something that makes sense in this world that he should have a daughter um i found that to be also kind of a a neat little uh uh through line as well there Mm. Mm. um did did either of you have any final points on this episode before we move on to uh, the final episode Earlier, you brought up uh, the the uh, the composer Matt. Was yes. there something more you wanted to touch upon with that? It felt like um, uh, I, that's something that you were. I mean, I, I I I do wonder if if you guys. I don't have a great um, theory as to why they decided to create a composer in this situation. To me, it just kind of feels like uh, you know he's got this this wonderful. Um, composer at his disposal in Preisner and wouldn't it be fun to make up a a classical composer and and create music that he seemingly would or could have written um, during his time period do you do you think that there is uh, significance to that aspect of the film beyond that I, I I think that I think it's right along those lines. I think we needed a, a specific piece of music and uh, Preisner wanted to, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that maybe Preisner had been writing something else on his own and uh, Kishlowski wanted to feature it in some manner to make it a little more present. Now, does this does this director, I, I've only seen the next three films I think I'm missing white in terms of films that I've seen. Does this conductor show up again later in any of his other films as a, as an actual kind of presence or is it just specific to this episode? 
I believe it's specific to this episode. I don't think Vandenbundemeiter? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Vandenbundemeiter will come up again in in other films, right? Uh, it, oh, like, okay. like I, I don't want to, I don't want to say it. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It'll, he'll come up again. Um, yeah. He'll come up again in, in future works. I think Let, I'll, I'll put it like that. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's it's been a while cool. for me. So, um, yeah, that'll be, I think quite, quite prominent, quite, I think, uh, quite spectacularly in, uh, in blue. In blue. I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the is, has talked about the fact that, um, people, uh, who were sort of classical scholars uh, wrote him after this uh, episode was aired to uh, <laughs> yeah. inquire about yeah. more information about this composer <laughs> because they had never heard of him before. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know how true that is, but it's a really great story nevertheless. Um, and, it, you know, I, I think the other my other kind of uh, loose theory about this creation is that it does bind the creators of this series more closely with the characters. It's almost as if similar to the witness or the other characters from other episodes, uh, Preisner himself is making an appearance in this episode um, yes. by, but you know, portraying this composer. Um, so it's sort of, it, it, it bridges the gap between the production of the Decalogue and the universe of the Decalogue in a very kind of subtle way. Oh, it's very good. A lot of times we talk about how this character is a, a stand-in for the director or the writer, and now mm. we actually have a, a composer mm. that is a direct stand-in for the uh, yeah. composer, yeah. which is yeah. which is very nice. Mm. So... Uh, Episode 10 is, uh, I think, a pretty uh, unusual departure from the tone um, and just gen general um, structure of the other films uh, in this series. Um, it's a black comedy, as has been um, under underlined by um, many reviewers and essayists, um, and it's... Uh, um, it's got uh, a significant amount of humor in it and um, the relationship and sort of their, uh, the plot itself is uh, significantly lighter uh, despite the fact that it has uh, some very, very dark uh, um, aspects to it. Um, this is a, a episode about uh, two brothers whose father dies. Uh, the brothers have not been in contact with each other for a couple of years. Um, and they uh, discover that his uh, stamp collection, which is housed in his apartment in the complex uh, that Decalogue covers, uh, is worth a significant amount of money. And they uh, go to great lengths to protect it and also to try to carry on his um his legacy when they when they um get emotionally wrapped up in the uh in in the the same thing that he dedicated his life to um i think most significantly uh this uh, co-stars uh Yerzy Stur, yes. who was the lead in camera buff and was also in um, personnel as well right yeah yes. and, and it was the 
It was the uh, the one where he gets married and the horses. Oh, that's it. The calm. Yeah, not not personnel. The calm. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he's just a fucking delight. I mean, he's a, oh, he's so his face. I think mm-hmm. is is one of the great faces in film. He, he it's just it's got this deep um, sympathy and humanity to it, and yet it's so rubber and just feels. Like it can go in any direction, and and is just filled with both joy and uh, struggle at the same time. It's 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 really a, a pleasure to behold, and um, I think overall this episode is is pretty fun. What, Daisuke, what do you think of of this final um, episode of Decalogue? I admit, when I first saw the Decalogue many years ago, I thought that this the tenth episode was uh, it, it was a maybe not as powerful as the other yeah. episodes that was what my first thought was uh, to be maybe even the cynical side of me might have described it as being almost like a palate cleanser um, it, after all of this this seemingly emotional strife and and moral dilemmas that we've seen from one up to the recent one nine um, but I was mistaken in my in that kind of assessment because I think there is a lot of richness here. Um, again, I think we we see a lot of playfulness in the way in which information about the narrative is revealed to us, the viewers. There are a lot of things that are direct, a lot of things that aren't direct, and a lot of things that I don't think we are meant to even begin to try to understand about the stamp collecting world and all this networking and the conspiracy about what actually happened and all this stuff. Um, it, it's all wonderful uh, uh, and very, you know, black. It's described as black comedy, but it's 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 quite uh, funny stuff. But it's all to do with the relationship between the brothers, um, uh, Yerji and Artur, right? So, um, and I find that the relationship between them and it's sort of. The, it, their their reunion because as you say they they hadn't met for I think it was maybe a couple of years and uh, they are really enjoying being each in each other's company uh, notwithstanding the fact that they are together because of their father's death of course which is a very difficult time uh, but then from there we see in the work the ups and downs of the relationship uh, to the final conclusion which I find incredibly uh, heartwarming and reassuring and very optimistic um i mean despite the fact that the work ends with city death uh the 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 tone that we are left with i think is very optimistic therefore i think that decalogue 10 is a key work in the whole structure of the decalogue it's it's Mm. and and perhaps it is a kind of palate cleanser in a positive sense because we are left with a very positive uh, uh, energy uh, and the the ultimate that you know the the brothers in essence they they break up but then they come back together again. Uh, I think we can dis- discuss further as to how genuine that might be. Uh, maybe it 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 has more to do with the the dynamics of the narrative at that particular point more than than uh, a real genuine sense of emotion, or maybe it is due to a sense of genuine emotion. I'd I'd like to think that it's the latter, uh, and if that's the case, then I think it's it's a very key work in the overall structure of the Decalogue. Mm. 
What do you think, Travis? I I found this to be delightful. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that throughout the episodes, um, we've been on an emotional roller coaster in terms of of building these tensions, building these uh, these despairs and these tragedies, but also these really hard moral conundrums. And like you have all these deep and thoughtful meditations on different items. And then we come to episode 10 and instead of leaving us down, it's almost like <laughs> there's this like joyful kind of comedy, which um, we know as of watching other um, Kishlowski films that he can get really good black comedy and having Jersey stir back uh, to play this character and just the way these two brothers react to each other and react to information is is amazing like I the two of them play off each yeah. other so fantastically um, I really like this and in terms of capping off as being the final one I mean it really does kind of it kind of encapsulates this idea that like all this stuff is hard and all these all these uh conundrums and moral moral questions um can be really waiting but if you have someone in your corner that you can kind of trust and enjoy life with then it can kind of be more rewarding um you know because you have this film and you have these guys who all of a sudden who had no clue about stamps or could care less about them all of a sudden realizing the value of these things and it's all monetary but really you know as cliche it is you know the journey that they go through the most important part is the journey that they had together because at the end you realize that they're very well connected together they 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 think along the same lines and that the idea of them being together was the most fulfilling part of this mm. collection. It's almost like the father has unknowingly, you know, brought his two sons right. together because of his obsession, which is uh, which is very interesting if you want to put that as a general baseline of Kishlowski's obsession with. Uh, filmmaking and telling these stories and how it's actually bringing people together in some sort of way that uh, intended or unintended consequences, you know, it's a, it's, it's lovely. I really do enjoy it. And yeah. I mean, I, I think this, this episode uh, starts off so great. And uh, you know, I think the, the city death song at the beginning, um, as uh, Yerzy Stur is is getting tossed about in the <laughs> uh, in the crowd, trying to, um, trying to get his brother's attention while he's while he's singing about uh, basically breaking the Ten Commandments, um, it's, it's just it's so funny, and um, I think coming off of of the the reunion in episode nine, which I think despite the the difficult path that those two characters were on uh is such a a joyful and optimistic uh, moment in especially in comparison to a significant number of the previous episodes that um this feels like such a perfect natural progression into uh the finale um and 
you know, and, and then I think just the nature of the fact that this guy is, is on stage and, and his brother is trying to make a connection with him. He's there, uh, getting tossed about anyway, um, is, uh, is, is a good representation of their relationship at the beginning of this episode and, and the, the journey that they will go on to eventually, uh, reunite together at the, at the end, um, and re- and recognize their similarities that they're no longer separated in this regard um, is is more powerful than I think a lot of people give this episode credit for because I think mm. there is uh, a very deep emotional bond at the center of this and even though it's treated lightly um, it's it's still fairly powerful at the end and I do think that. Um, that aspect of the episode is is something worth celebrating. Yeah, for a uh, for a self proclaimed pessimist, was a pessimist. Yeah, for a self proclaimed pessimist, he ends with a very hopeful message uh, at the end of all this, and I I appreciate that greatly. It feels good. It's a nice uh, cleanser at the end of all this uh, heavy heavy moral uh, moral uh, questioning to have these two just be joyfully laughing together you know mm. looking at their very cheap uh, stamp collection <laughs> which they bought from Tomek right or at least yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Or we see one of the brothers bought yes. from Tomek so yes. Yes, yes yeah yes. What, what do you guys um, think of each of these characters I guess kind of what where their um, interest in the stamp collection comes from obviously they flip pretty significantly once they find out that the uh the stamps are of significant value but they don't decide to um immediately sell it uh and and take the money what what do you guys think was their motivation behind that and and how they kind of grew to uh, take on this obsession um it starts from the premise that you know you don't know you, something only has value until it has value. So these things that they they took as the reason why their family fell apart, their mother was always unhappy, why they didn't get any attention from their father. You know these are these symbols for things that kept them away from each other and broke their family apart. So they don't care about them but as soon as they are giving some sort of financial value to them now they want them and it's very strange because you would think they want to just sell them they easily could have just started selling them and it didn't matter but it was weird because they wanted to hold on to them and protect them and in some you know it's it's strange because they don't even like they want to use them as some sort of as some sort of means to kind of help themselves out in different ways, like Jersey uh, giving the three stamps to his son as a means to connecting with him because he his son also collects stamps. And then the other brother kind of wanting to hold on to them for some sort of financial gain later and kind of like use them to uh, better themselves at some point. But at some point they stop doing that and they start figuring out a way to finish their father's collection. Yes. He was always missing that one. Mm-hmm. And so let's let's figure out a way to get that one into the collection. And it starts as kind of a 
you know, that way it's valued even more. But at the same time, you know, I would have to assume as collectors, which is now what they've become, you know, it's hard to stop collecting after you kind of get going. As collectors of physical media... <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, I almost <laughs> I almost started this conversation with, um, with, with that question because obviously the three of us are... Uh, collectors uh, to varying oh. degrees and uh, I mean do you think that this episode is about the the thrill of collecting or do you think that we're I, I mean I certainly felt like there was uh, an aspect of that in here um, but I don't know if that's just because I have that gene and it's you know it, it's something that I'm yeah. drawn to I mean that notebook is so sexy to me it's just like yeah. it's got all these secrets and you know it's it's a it's a it's a life story but it's also the story of uh these this this industry and this this culture of collecting stamps he's got all of this knowledge that he's gleaned over decades of investigation it's it's exciting when he when they when they open up that that notebook did did, did you guys feel that <laughs> Yes. Oh, totally. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. Totally. Yes. Do you think that, uh, that that do you think that that's um intentional on the part of Kishlovsky, but I think more importantly, do you think it's um part of what these brothers get wrapped up in is the thrill of the chase? I I think so. I think what you and Travis alluded to is absolutely uh, spot on, and I think it's it's further supported by the that wonderful scene between the two brothers at night and it's um um the the acting here were uh uh Jerzy Shore and uh, Zbigniew uh Zamachowski, right the it's just so s wonderful and the you alluded to the looks on their faces but what what was the line that they were saying it was at night and they're outside the apartment building and i think it's uh uh, uh, uh Jerzy who says i've forgotten about all of my other problems and yes. like where we and and it's uh, our tour uh, uh Zamachowski who says i think you know we never cared about grown up problems growing up oh it's childish but it feels good you know, so it's like yeah. they're rekindling something of their childhood, perhaps, uh, which is, I think, in line with what you were suggesting about the the story being about the two brothers coming together, um, and they haven't seen each other in such a long time. Um, it's also a means by which they can connect with their father in some way, um, right? Uh, 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 even though they never knew him, or at least uh, that's what they say. Uh, this is in, in some way, I think, uh, indirectly a way of connecting with their father, whether they want to or not. Uh, but yes, there, there's something kind of magical about this. And it's what he says, I've forgotten about my, all of my other problems. We understand that he, they have some issue. Um, uh, uh, Yerji or Yurik has some issue with his wife. There's something going on there. Um, I don't know if it's... I'm not sure what the what it exactly is, but there's some kind of issue going on there. We know that he's just moved into this this house or he is the first of this kind of... What, I'm not sure what his financial situation is exactly, but it's, it's probably... There are some problems that he has, but he is able to forget them in this 
a moment of bliss and you can see on his face oh, yeah. it is a moment of bliss so it is about the thrill of collecting I think more than anything else and it just happens to be stamps it could have been DVDs I suppose but <laughs> here it, 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 the, the choice of subject matter was stamps and good, good, well, for, good for Kishlovsky it's that idea of having a hobby um, taking away you know using your personal time for a personal passion and I think if you think about the history of uh, like the history of Poland at that time uh, to be at a place culturally where hobby is something that mm. can be satisfying finally and not just always struggling to be or work to survive. It becomes something that is here's here's we're finally at a point socially here where we can have a hobby and it can be rewarding and it could help just alleviate all of our other problems for a little while which is which is fascinating because yeah because jersey has all jersey has all these problems that the stamp collecting has has taking away all these responsibilities that he's been struggling with meanwhile artur has no responsibilities and now he has some and he feels very mm. useful finally. You know, he has that sense of, you know, this is exciting. We have adult problems. We have to think about security mm. and gates. And, like, this is great. Right. <laughs> they could come in. like, And that childish thing of, like, they can rappel down the building <laughs> and get in here this way. Oh, we haven't <laughs> thought of that. You know? It is so, it's like two younger brothers like, building a fort and protecting their, you know, their pirate gold. And it's, it's such, it's, it's that dynamic is such a fantastic exploration because throughout throughout the decalogue we've had like fathers and mothers brothers and sisters sisters and moms you know we've had all these different combinations of the family unit and this is the first time we've had like two brothers and and the mm. fact that they are so delightful in terms of kind of like how they go about things you know setting up a sting to catch the guy of you know mm -hmm. uh, lying about the stamp and it's just yeah. it's 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 very fun and it's it's it, yeah i just i just love that this is the ending i mean i can understand how yeah. a lot of people might look at this as like well that seems unsatisfying we've had all this you know all this drama and all these like deep emotions and then we end it with kind of a light comedy or a dark comedy, it seems, it seems kind of un, unfitting for all the heaviness that came before it. But I think that's you have to you have to leave on this because what you're going to end on a really depressing note. Like mm. how? Like this whole cycle of films is about is about life, and here we have the joyous aspect of life that we haven't really covered as fully yet. So it's 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 super exciting. I think it's also an interesting way to approach the commandment that they are ostensibly talking about here. Um, thou shalt not covet. Um, although I, I think, uh, there are two other commandments that apply here. The thou shalt not steal obviously applies to the mm -hmm. burglars that, that take the stamps and, and, uh, that honor thy, thy father and mother, um, obviously the their relationship to the stamp collection of their father um but if you look at it from the perspective of the coveting i i really like your comparison travis to the uh the overall um social state of poland that the the idea of having the leisure time or the 
available funds to dedicate to a hobby or to a passion um, that that is uh, a significant luxury in a way that I think we can't uh, appreciate to the same degree um, kind of ties into the uh, the element that Dice K was talking about in episode nine of, of connecting the phone in that episode with the stamps here, the, the stamps at the beginning of this episode are viewed as something that kept people apart, that they, the family was disconnected from each other. And this guy essentially mm-hmm. ruined the, his, the life around him in pursuit of this coveting, um, and yet, through the process of uh, protecting these stamps, of trying to complete the collection, these two brothers have um, made a connection with each other that they otherwise didn't have. And so the, the, the commandment is shown not as um, something that if you uh, break it, you will be punished, um, but as something much more complex than that. And as, as a indication that, um, these, these moral quandaries can be, um, worked through or approached in a fashion where something that seems initially to be separating people can actually uh, bring them together or something that ruins somebody's life can in fact have a positive effect. Even if you end up one kidney down (laughs) and on on that point i mean the father's stamp collection not only brought the sons together um you then realize how much his the father's you know quest for collecting these stamps has made connections for him in so many different ways the fact that he's like almost considered a a legend in the field you know their the brothers had no idea how yeah. famous yeah. this father is to everyone in the stamp collecting world and then not only that but the father always you know we go back to episode uh seven seven yeah where he shows the stamps to right. uh, mm. uh to the woman in the building uh you know that's the same father he's eight. there he's showing the stamps eight eight yeah. there you go um, you know, there's that sense that, uh, oh, that's right, it is eight, because that goes with my theory that everyone connects by odds or evens. Hmm. If we trace back through, uh, we're going to talk about that in our wrap-up episode. For <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> well, I know I, I, have a, I have a theory as well I want to throw out there <laughs> later on. Um, so anyway, <laughs> uh, he makes connections to the people in his, in, his, in his building, in his neighborhood. He's proud. He shows the stamps off, and he, he talks to people about it, so... This idea that the coveting tore one family apart, it helped the father get closer to the world around him, which um, you can't, you know, looking at it from only one perspective, the perspective of the sons who see that as the thing that tore their family apart, you know, now that they're older and more adult and they're seeing this, they see how it also connects to everything around them. Now there's, you know, they're involved in a larger world because of this collection as well. Yeah, that that is wow. You guys bring up some really great points. That is so great. I mean, I'm reminded of the the, the initial funeral and the way he, the father was eulogized. Mm-hmm. You right? You he, he sacrificed his family. 
his career and even his emotional emotional life for the sake of of this thing which we will later discover to be stamp collection and he won like 11 gold medals or something that's what they said in the eulogy but yeah, right just, it, it yeah. he was a big part of the the community there and also i love that and so so travis i love what you said there and then matt i loved what you said and travis too about how the it was the pursuit of the coveting that brought the brothers together at the end. I love that because that therefore makes city death uh, something more than an ironic punchline, right? If we think of city death and the lyrics, you know, I mean, not the kill, kill, kill part, but, you know, covet covet everything all the time or something. Uh, Artur is actually... Uh, practicing what he preaches <laughs> in a way right so it's it's almost like a like a, that song becomes not a, an ironic thing but it, it in a in a kind of delicate way it becomes uh, something uh, that is principled in the work that's a really great raise but I never thought about that before well to yeah. extend what you're talking about by linking it to the song I mean if there is a deeper implication of that sort of punk hardcore um, anarchy or um, revolution, um, just sort of rebellion in general. Um, It is the implication that uh, the society has failed you to a certain degree. And and, uh, the the value of this music and of this message is to uh, defy authority that has... um, clamped down on uh, personal freedoms, on uh, social freedoms, on um, just general uh, humanity and the the humanity of of its citizens um, and to to really refocus um, on yourself and on the relationships around you and, uh, and reject the uh, social structure that has created um, the uh, seeds of dissent and, and disconnect that are present in a, and particularly in a in an authoritarian state like Poland. Um, so there, you know, I think your your linking of that with the song is is relevant in terms of the the character that he is and sort of the message of of that type of music. Um, and again, you know, as as Travis has underlined throughout the season, like the the more personal Kishlovsky becomes, the the more political uh, message of his uh, films is is resonant and and effective. Yeah. <clears throat> um, what about the shopkeeper? Uh, he's kind of a bastard obviously, <laughs> although he is trying to uh, save his daughter, uh, which, you know, is nice, I guess. Um, it's He's really going about doing it in a funny way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like, it, he's really keeping it in his back pocket. I mean, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. like to to have a stamp that uh, that's going to save your your child by getting that's that's the only way to get a kidney is, is a pretty specific plan to to save her life. But, um, what do you think of, of him? And, and also just in general, like of these characters that surrounded, um, their father, the rogues. Gallery. Yeah. The various, <laughs> um, but the various stamp collectors with both seemingly 
positive and negative uh, motives for interacting. I, they're fantastic. Uh, you know, just these CD characters that exist within this world. I mean, from the uh, from the guy that's leaning on him for some money that his father owes him, where there's no proof, like, there's no proof of what the dad owes this guy. He just knows he's dead, and he probably saw his son at the funeral, and he goes right over there and is like, your dad owes me money. Like, well, okay, <laughs> you owe me this. And, you know, you know it's a, it's a play for the stamps. Like, you know, we... Right. we we as a as a uh, as a film savvy culture understand that that's what we're this guy is leaning towards right away, you know the boys the son the brothers in there might not know it right away you know they see it as a oh shit we got to pay off dad's debts, um, but we as you know that's an obvious right away play for the stamps he goes right to the apartment and there he is like oh yeah your dad owes me money let's look around in here maybe mm-hmm. I can uh, maybe you can sell me something. Um, mm-hmm. But the shopkeeper, you know, he's at that, that fence and he's got his whole like little chain of, uh, you know, he's got his little street guy that goes out there and is scamming people for, you know, he's got the whole system. It's funny. It's a fun little, uh, it's a fun little crime family. It's almost feels like they've got their whole system in play and us as the audience and the brothers as the uh, subjects don't understand until all the pieces fall into play when the when the three of them all show up in that one street corner together it's like all becomes very clear to them that they've been had it's a it's a it's a quite nice uh, little bit of filmmaking uh, storytelling i mean talk about coincidences my goodness all the characters <laughs> at one moment at the very end they're converging <laughs> in that in that moment there I, it, it, there are so many questions though about this conspiracy that i have yeah that i i don't i don't quite know what the details are so the three there were three of them who were in cahoots two of them had these large dogs <laughs> so are we to assume that maybe the dog locusts i think it was his name was the uh, had something, you know, maybe they could subdue the dog if they yeah. were the ones who actually broke in there. I think they if bought that's the, the case, dog then... from, from them, and then that way they yeah. they knew that the dog wasn't going to attack them because the dog already knew them and was trained by the them. Dog's name is, the dog's name because is Loki, that's, right? That's right, yes. And the, yeah, but so that, the trickster dog? <laughs> <laughs> oh, because the dog came from, was Artur's idea, right? Right. And Artur but said he, he he was oh the the dog was some friend you know he hurts from some friends oh I they're my advice you know they gave me this advice so I always thought that the dog came from Artur so Artur got the dog through some network which generated from these three guys I'm getting lost already I don't I'm, I'm, <laughs> and and if they broke in then how did they know that the the inside alarm system was was disconnected right because i it was uh uh Jerzy who had admitted to the police that it was he who disconnected the yeah. the alarm system when he was installing the bars or something like well, that well it's so, possible so that they of, didn't yeah. even know that there was an alarm system right that's possible yeah. yes i mean they they may have just assumed from the that it would just be getting through the bars and getting past the dog if so, that it was an incredible stroke of good fortune, which I suppose was was uh, uh, inspired by the fact that one of the brothers was in hospital, right? So that would mean that there would be one less brother to worry about, I suppose, if that was indeed the plot. Right. Well, and two less brothers because uh, um, Artur was busy getting his face touched. Of of course, yes. of course, yes. So so <laughs> yes, yeah, so everything fell into place. 
just as and and they just happen to meet on the street corner where, where all these uh, these conspirators obviously meet. So it's it it's wonderful. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> a, it's a it's and the and also the the net the labyrinthine network of the stamp collecting world is just so wonderful. You know the when they meet in the park and uh, the shopkeeper describes. Oh, yes. I, uh, there's a guy. Who is who's looking for this uh, this this uh, stamp or this this uh, series of stamps? And wh- where do we get this? Oh, I know it's, it's from this guy who has that. But he what this guy wants is something is another stamp. Oh, is that what we have? No, it's actually something that I have. So it's this <laughs> this wonderful uh, maze like network that is just it 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 wraps. I'm just I get confused the more I, oh. I try to think about it. it it's wonderful. I, I love it. Yeah. Oh yeah, like take take the most what on the outward appearance uh, the most boring of all the hobbies and make it so thrilling and action packed and exciting <laughs> is a, is a fantastic filmmaking feat to begin with. Yes. But yeah, that that concept that uh, these these characters are always one or two steps ahead of the brothers in terms of figuring out a way to separate them from their uh, from their dad's stamp collection. Yes. You know they try. They're trying all these different angles, and uh, you know, just that concept of grifting to the point where, like, talking him into giving a kidney to get a stamp. The <laughs> the the conversation <laughs> the two of them have right. of justifying it happens so quickly. It is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> it, it, there is no like, let's sit on this for a night. Let's really think about this. It's like, well, I mean, you got two. I guess you're right. And you would be helping a girl. Now you're right there as right. well. Yeah, I think I think this is the only way. And Artur is like, oh, I I would I would do it. Darn, it's too bad I can't. <laughs> it's great. And what does he say? So yeah, he, yeah. And he's like, I know a guy who's who had one kidney for twenty years. He's he's fine. He can still you know have sex or something like yeah. that. You know, yeah. it's... he still drinks. He still has sex. It's all good. <laughs> Well, and it's funny, like, I mean, the, the, the whole, like, stamp thing, I guess it's it's funny, like, the episode nine is described as, as the most Hitchcockian, but the stamps here are, are really, like, a pretty hardcore MacGuffin. I mean, they, they, oh, there's yeah. so much yes. complexity to uh, that story and to the background of all of these characters. I mean, the, 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 the head stamp collector guy who gives the eulogy it, it's it's so complex uh, when when ultimately it's the the driver of the the drama and the the interest in this film is entirely the relationship between these two brothers and their kind of interactions with each other which you know ultimately the climax is not the removal of the kidney but the two of them suspecting each other and sort of giving tipping off the police officer who is so droll and um and just <laughs> that performance is is so funny um the way he so yeah the way he receives like, that information like he so clearly knows that these guys uh, had nothing to do with it um and uh and yeah the pain the pained expression on the brother's faces as yes trying to point the blame <laughs> at their other brother it's almost like a pe- you know when you when you scold your children like who broke that and the one yeah. brother's like oh it was him like i i i it was him he's the one <laughs> obviously i didn't and you know they they feel so bad about doing it and then yeah it's it's you know it's great it's it's a really good performance the two of them i wish i wish they uh 
they could made a whole series totally. of movies together. Yeah. Do you think that the brothers reconciling at the end there was due to something uh, innate within themselves, the guilt uh, maybe of giving the, the other brother up, so to speak? Um, or do you think, I mean, the fact that it comes so soon after they see the three conspirators on the corner of the street yeah. there might lead one to interpret their their reconciliation to be oh well, we at last we know we, I, maybe we know the truth yeah they realize or something their like folly that yeah. of of blaming the other brother i, I yes. think that was a a big part of it um but then i think also the the fact that they they each bought the the same stamps yes really yes. is what makes like i think you know they, they could have without that aspect of it they could have sort of come back together and said i'm sorry i uh, doubted you and then gone their separate ways i think the yeah. ultimate sort of joyful connection that they make at the end comes out of the realization that they both sort of caught this bug and that they are so alike that they picked the same the same stamps wow. to get it's so much better yeah. that showing than telling, you know, yeah. there could have been that conversation and they don't need it. They're just, they're back to being excited and together and that they're alike. It's, 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 it's right. a really fantastic uh, period on the end of this uh, 10 episode sentence. Yeah, because it's right. We, because we see at least Jerji uh, uh, buy the stamps before he sees the the conspirators on the street yeah. right yeah they, so yeah, i think they both did yeah so it's almost like they had that inkling within them uh before they knew or they they could decode what the truth was so maybe they they were on the road to recovery so to speak uh even before that final scene on the street corner well yeah and there's that and there's that void you know the stamps are gone now Yes. You know, so what what is going to hold these two brothers together? They, all they had was the stamps that were keeping them together. And yes. so by purchasing that stamp, they're filling that void again. And then it just so happens that, uh, you know, they're so on the same wavelength now yes. that they've that they've coincidentally bought the same exact stamps. It just uh, solidifies that bond. It's uh, it's it's fantastic. Uh, what, right. Which is so crystallized even more poetically at the very end. Right. When the two of them are they're touching with their their leaning heads like that and they're yeah. laughing and it's like their laughter blows away the stamps that were on the table. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like two yeah. two brothers underneath a blanket like reading a comic book together by flashlight. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like just this pure joy like the You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, the other thing that I find really great about this episode is uh, is Prisoner's music. Yes. There's these really great comedic beats. The drums. You know, there's this, you know, the drums <laughs> where they, and then we get closer, we get closer again. Oh, and it reminds me of the, you know, totally reminds me of Monty Python with the scene of uh, uh, him running up to the castle and you got that heavy drum yeah. beat and it keeps repeating itself but just that that comedic timing is uh is is great yeah yeah i think uh you know the you know i think he's described as the witness or the angel or the demon you know the artur mm. uh barchis right he doesn't appear in uh episode right. 10 
And I always like to think in my head when I watch this, you know, the drums, whenever we hear the that, 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 that drum, that's the witness. He is somewhere in the room or somewhere out there, maybe watching the characters as some kind of re- a revelation has fallen upon them or something. <laughs> maybe so, he took yes, the stamps. <laughs> we, we never need we never see exactly who stole it no right? it's only we just implication see the, yeah, yeah right and the blowtorch we but we never oh. see who stole it so perhaps there is a theory there yes <laughs> across the cross cutting the cross cutting of that scene between the preparation for surgery and the preparation for the robbery is uh is really fantastic as well you know because you you're you're mm. i'm like oh they're putting gloves on so this is the surgery that they're about to perform and then you realize that all these little pieces that they're doing is the preparation to break into the house and <laughs> it's 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 not the surgery we're about yeah. to witness is uh is really is really great yeah. uh going back to the witness i like to think of this episode is at no point do they come across a moral problem that they have to consider they always have each other and it's so there's no need for the witness to bear witness to any of this these brothers are making the right choices it feels like you know what i mean it's like mm. in the other episodes the witnesses always come at a at a crucial point where someone needs to make a choice and together like with even with the exception of the brothers turning each other right. in like the witness, like the the cop is obviously like, dude, you guys are so stupid. <laughs> obviously, neither of you did this. And in even those choices, it's not a real moral problem because as soon as they say it, you know that they instantly regret it and they're going to go figure it out and make up for it. There is no moral moral problem. Like even the decision to hold on to the stamps comes from a a connective tissue and uh, how we're going to get them back and like everything, every choice they're making seems to be correct in terms of the building of their relationship that even when they they turn on each other it's half-hearted and not very forceful and so there is no need for this witness to be there to help kind of like give them the side eye and help them make the right choice you know so it's almost like the witness isn't necessary in this episode because this is an episode in which you know we've gone through all the other commandments and this is the one that is okay they figured it out it's the uh it's the is the morally gray one that nothing is needed to kind of steer this uh correctly that everything has already been everything has run its course perfectly that this is going to work out the way it's supposed to mm. i love that that is a great interpretation um what about the uh the way this this episode is shot i think it's it's a possibly the most kind of austere straightforwardly shot episode it it feels like you know as you were describing the cross cutting it feels like the performances and the editing do much of the heavy lifting in terms of a visual um, representation of what's going on as opposed to lighting or uh, yeah. any, and lens work or anything like that it's it's shot like a comedy yeah you know, you have it's it's it stays widish. You know, comedies are wide. Uh, you know, if you get too close, then you can see someone's pain, so it's not funny anymore. If you stay at a distance, removed, then things are funny. You know, from the from the dead fish floating and their reaction to it to the fact that they're always in the background, they never clean them up. 
<laughs> which is <laughs> amusing to me as well. You know, they're too automatically like, oh, look, the dead fish. Oh, that sucks. The stamps and the stamps become the na- number one thing they focus on. Um, it's yeah, I I agree. I think it's uh, it's very it's very formal in its comedic, you know, in its comedic mm-hmm. stylings. Um, it doesn't break, you know, it doesn't break new ground. It's not like the last episode where he's really using the camera to tell the story. The performances are telling the story, and even when they do do the, like the little montage of the break in and stuff like that, it's very, you know, it's very graphic in terms of like, uh, you know, the glove, mm-hmm. the blowtorch, the cut. You know, it's it's yeah. very specific, like telling us exactly the information we need without going, you know, and cross-cutting it to the surgery which makes it also become something that's very funny as well so there's a there's one camera movement though that i'm i don't quite understand or i think i do but i want to see what you think of it everything i think is very austere and very direct as you described except for one shot which is in the park when the when they're meeting the shopkeeper on the bench there we see the shopkeeper walking in the park there's a there's a oh, shot where the camera POV. is yeah from behind a tree and mm-hmm. it, it and it then goes it, it's almost like the pov shot from decalogue 9 of uh uh uh, uh Romek from the the closet mm. uh except mm-hmm. it's in the this open space of a park and it's a pov that almost leads nowhere in that it, it, it sort of settles down into a, a a stable shot and then we go into the close-ups of the character sitting on the bench. But I, I, I wonder what you thought of that. I mean, I don't... I, I make of it sort of like a, a, maybe there is this sort of a, a, a light caper sti- type of Hitchcockian feel of of uh, paranoia, perhaps. Mm. You know, th- of the environment is not what, what it seems, perhaps. But I don't know what, what else to make of it other than that kind of establishment of, a, of, a, of that kind of uh, uh, atmosphere. But uh, it, it, it strikes me as something very... Uh, it, it, it's something that uh, pops out immediately, but... Yeah, I think uh, I, I was I was considering it a part of that same cinema language of paranoia. You know, they're meeting the clandestine meeting in a park with the guy who has the information, and then mm. the camera's kind of like you know someone's spying on them a bit, giving that feel of this uh, importance to right. this. But it also easily it could also be that yeah, that dude with the the limp is there watching. Mm. Uh, because yeah. he's, you know, they're all working together as well. It could be, it could be both literal and just kind of aesthetically to make that f- scene feel that, uh, that way. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I, I, I do feel like there is uh, such a, a silliness to the the whole setup of the of the exchange for the kidney um, that opening with a shot like that, like it's a heist almost um it really helps Mm. uh underscore that i had forgotten about that that moment um but yeah i mean it it does feel like it fits in with the overall kind of perspective of this feeling like it's shot like a comedy um Mm. so i like how the uh the son uh, yerze's son like he's presented with these three stamps a gift from his father 
and <laughs> the son who does, you know, it's like when, when I was given, you know, when my parents tried to give me a gift in terms of a movie that they thought I would like, you know, most movies I, you know, I already had. So they give me like some big box setty thing that maybe I'm like, I'm not that interested in. And then I would sell it to get more movies <laughs> that I would like. <laughs> and it's that same aspect of like, here, I thought you would like these. You like planes. And he's like, oh, yeah, thanks, Dad. Oh, look, I traded it for hundreds of other stamps. But these are worthless. Yeah, but I have so many more now. <laughs> like, look, my collection has grown ginormously because of this, uh, because I was able to pass off these three stamps you gave me. I like that moment of just the you know childishness of this kid who's just like, no, it's fine. It's just stamps. They're all stamps. There's no value to them really. Look mm. how many more I got. Look how many Pokemon I just got because I uh, traded this one Charizard. Yeah, the pile of stamps is hilarious. It's just, <laughs> didn't this occur to you at some point during this trade that maybe these stamps are worth something? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And that's his real son, the father and son, right? Uh, Jerzy Stor's uh, actual son. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I think so, yes. Oh, that makes it even funnier that they use his real name as the character um, that he's portraying (laughs) as well. What what do you make of that lovely brief uh, scene between Artur and the nurse? Mm-hmm. And um, I think it could be on the one, you know, when she's, oh, are you city death? Yeah. Can I touch you? You know, um, <laughs> and and I, I love that because he's just very flippant or not flippant, but he's, yeah, sure, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm, can you tell me about my brother? He's admitted here in the hospital. So I, I wonder what you made of that that moment. I, I, I always thought it was on the one hand, a, a really lovely sort of comic throwaway moment. But also, it's it's very much of a indicative of of Artur's character. I think that uh, and he's seen in the in uh, in glimpses anyway in the in previous parts of the episode. I mean, he 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 seems to like women, and he seems to have a lot of fans. And so, I don't know if he's a womanizer necessarily. We don't get in, in, into that uh, detail of his life, but but. What I love about this moment is that it's a it, it's an indication of his of his devotion to his brother in this moment. He could have very easily have gone along with the nurse and maybe uh, started to hit on her or something like that. But he was saying, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. But can you tell me about my brother? So it's almost like this experience has really solidified his his uh, relationship with his brother which i think we've discussed uh uh, uh in uh, earlier in this uh, podcast but um i i don't know what what you made of that uh, particular moment if anything yeah i think that I go think, ahead travis yeah go ahead uh no i was gonna say i think i i i agree i think it's there to show that yeah. uh he's grown and changed a bit because i think at the if remind me if i correct me if i'm wrong but at the beginning, when uh, when he picks up it, when he goes to meet his, when Yerze goes to meet his brother at the concert, they have a bit where another fan kind of connects with Artur. Uh, correct? Like, doesn't isn't there another girl that kind of like says something and he kisses her or something? Yeah. Am I making that up? 
I don't remember. Yeah, there is a there is someone that we see we see him kissing a woman, and then he says goodbye to to them. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. he gets yeah. dropped so, off. Yeah, they're driving yeah, and they drop him off or something. Yeah, yeah, and they kiss him goodbye. His, yeah, yeah. So there's that moment like that, and then later when he has the opportunity again to kind of get with a fan, he is more concerned about his brother than about that. You know, you see his growth in that. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. You do see. You do see Artur's growth as he starts accepting responsibility and gets closer yeah. to his brother. And yes. one of the things that I read about um, was that originally in the script there was more um, in about Yerze and his dissolving marriage and how him and his wife were, were not getting along and basically to the point where he's living at the dad's apartment because they are... Uh, they're at odds, yeah. and so kind of like as this as this stamp collecting thing uh, becomes his obsession, it, it it becomes a negative impact. And I think it was a I think it was a good choice on his part because to really kind of sell the positivity of this collection, uh, having have that negative impact would kind of uh, deflate some of that joy the two of them have together. Because you know it yeah. easily could have been instead of this joyous moment of collect. Uh, joyous moment of connection between the two brothers at the end it could have easily been a manic moment of obsession that they're casting everything off to continue this mad obsession their father had that ruined everything Mm. and so i thought it was a it was a good it was a good move by kishlowski to kind of excise that uh that element from the script to kind of keep that uh positivity going i i really agree dice k Mm -hmm. about it feeling like a moment that he's kind of putting away his childish things and making this showing that he cares about somebody other than himself, that he's has this connection with his brother, you know, the whole process of him. It's almost as if the two brothers are meeting halfway between their previous situation. You know, um, Artur is this, uh, anarchist, uh, punk, lead singer who's driving around in vans getting laid and um you know just just has no responsibilities lives in his backpack um whereas yerzy is more of the conservative like ultimate grown-up he's raising a family uh, you know he's got a son uh where but by the end of the episode artur has has replaced himself in the um in the band with a different lead singer uh, so that they can go on tour so he can stay and, you know, care to his responsibilities while Yerzy is, has been uh, reduced to what his son does, which is collect stamps, go out, go to the post office and buy stamps. <laughs> um, and so they're kind of like meeting halfway. One of them has learned to mature a little bit and the other one has learned to have a little bit more fun and, and just enjoy something that he is uh that he's passionate about or that he feels is a a fun hobby to do yeah i like that matt i like that uh that assessment um well so uh this is uh this is the end of uh the decalogue episodes uh process (laughs) on the complete we've covered all 10 episodes and the the two uh feature films now um we're, we're gonna save our sort of overarching um 
comments for a wrap-up episode uh, that we will hope to put out uh, soon on the the end of this uh, the tail end of of this episode. Um, but Daisuke, I was wondering if you had any um, kind of final thoughts. You you uh, get to be because you are the uh, the final guest on this Decalogue run. Um, you get to to kind of look at the overview of the the whole series, which I'm, I'm sure you've watched the other episodes before. Um, do you have any thoughts on the the overall series and um, you know kind of how these two episodes uh, fit into kind of capping off the run? Oh gosh, um, I I think. Uh, the series as a whole is uh, so complex that I think every time one views the work as a whole, I think one finds, you know, for instance, during this viewing, these episodes resonated with me more, but maybe in another viewing, other episodes would resonate mm. And, and so on and so forth. In other words, it, it really, there, it, it offers, I think, so many things uh, to, to the viewer, depending on the view, where the viewer is in his or her own life, which I think is fascinating. Um, and that's just uh, the, the incredibly uh, complex and deep uh, myriad of, of issues and, and themes and uh, situations that's presented in this the span of a work. So, um, the, the I think the I I I must go back to my initial comment on Decalogue Ten, which was how I first viewed this episode negatively, but now I view it quite positively. Uh, so much so that I think it is it is actually integral to the entire work. Um, you know, the work, I think, can be, there's something that can be said about watching the works not necessarily in the order in which they are presented. I think one might be able to get away with watching some episodes out of order. Not that I would suggest that, but I think my point is that there are uh, certain uh, uh, elements that I think uh, can operate uh, equally well, despite where they might fall in the chronology of the episodes. Mm -hmm. However, I think Decalogue Ten is maybe Decalogue One, perhaps. But but in, but uh, my the strongest exception I have to that would be Decalogue Ten. I think this is the ideal way to end the series. Uh, for the reasons that I think you and Travis uh, touched on so eloquently, which is the fact that it is a a, a kind of of it, it 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 reaffirms what my what my view of the the work is as a whole, which is essentially it 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 can be seen as an uh, it's it's very complex, but it can be seen overall as a work of, of uh, humanism and optimism. And I think the fact that we end on Decalogue 10 just uh, punctuates that feeling that I have uh, uh, quite strongly. Um, so, uh, therefore, it becomes not this work of, of uh, great weight yet uh, of sort of dour sadness or tragedy, but it ends on, a, on an note that is uplifting which is I think so apropos 
to the work as a whole. So uh, uh, I'm, I, that's how I view the work and that's how I view in particular Decalogue 10 in the context mm. of this, which is why I think this Decalogue 10 is incredibly important, um, much more important than I had originally uh, thought it was you know, many years ago. So uh, uh, that's why I want to thank you gentlemen for inviting me to discuss Decalogue 10. Uh, because I think it figures in so so strongly with uh, within the framework of the entire work. As you're a bastion of positivity, Daisuke, we thought it was very fitting that you <laughs> end with the uh, positivity episode. It's very good. It's very yeah. It's a fun. It's nice how that worked out. Well, it'd be amazing to to flip one and ten in the order. <laughs> my goodness, I, I mean, man. to oh my goodness, you, you'd really get the wrong impression about what you're going to watch from episode 10 starting off oh, and then man. uh you i feel like if you ended on one you would just be so angry at episode 10 <laughs> for yeah. for lying oh, yeah. to you um so yeah no i think i think uh that's a, a really great point uh that you make uh and and yeah i mean we we want to thank you so much for coming on and, and discussing this i had a great time um, and uh, it's it's really a, a pleasure to to speak with you online, and and uh, and I'm glad that we got the opportunity to uh, to speak uh, on this show today. So thank you, Dice K, very much for for coming on with us and for staying up late so far away uh, on the yeah, other side I of the world. Appreciate it. Oh, not at all. Uh, the pleasure was all mine, gentlemen. It was mu- it was uh, so fun to hear your thoughts about this. This so uh, and and congratulations on your work thus far. Uh, I look forward to uh, uh, your your continuing work and continuing pro- uh, podcast episodes going forward. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, this is the end, Travis. Um, we will, we, as I mentioned, we will be doing a wrap up episode, uh, hoping to have a special guest for that one. We'll see how it pans out. And, um, so we will take a break from our chronological progression next time. And, um, then we'll get into, um, double life of Veronique after that. But, um, any, any final parting words, Travis, before we lead into the overarching discussion of of decalogue i think i'm gonna hold everything off to the overarching because uh i think it'll be more fun (laughs) (laughs) and i think you know with that we're complete for another week 25thframemedia.com a listener supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide